This is CNN Breaking News. Good morning, everyone. I'm Poppy Harlow, along with Phil Mattingly in New York. Our Aaron Burnett is live near the Gaza border, and it is 6 a.m. here on the East Coast, 1 p.m. in Israel, where we are following breaking news on several fronts in this escalating war between Israel and Hamas. The Israeli military says 300,000 troops with tanks and artillery are massing near the Gaza border as airstrikes continue to rain down this morning, a ground invasion looking more possible as well. And they are now close to the Gaza Strip, getting ready to execute the mission that they have been given, that we have been given by the Israeli government, and that is to make sure that Hamas, at the end of this war, won't have any military capabilities by which they can threaten or kill Israeli civilians. That is our military aim. The, the Israel Defense Force releasing this new video of it bombing a university hours ago. IDF officials say Hamas has turned it into a training center to make weapons. And this is a video of the destruction in Gaza this morning. The government there warning that all electricity will completely stop shortly. Right now, we don't know the fate of all the hostages who were kidnapped from Israel and taken to Gaza. President Biden has confirmed Americans are among the captives, and at least 20 U.S. citizens are currently unaccounted for. The death toll in Israel from Hamas's surprise assault over the weekend continues to rise. Now at least 1,200 people are confirmed dead as the scale and savagery of the massacre comes to light. CNN got a firsthand look at an Israeli community center near the Gaza border, where Hamas butchered innocent civilians, including women, toddlers, and babies. Overnight, the first round of weapons and ammunition from the United States arrived in Israel. We've got team coverage from around the region and here at home. Let's get right to Aaron Burnett near the Gaza border. Aaron, at this point, what, what are you seeing? What are you hearing? So, Phil and Poppy, we are right now just about three miles from the Gaza border. And what we've been hearing is a lot of incoming and outgoing fire. Uh, we have heard airstrikes. Uh, we have there's been obviously uh, air siren warnings sort of in areas. You can actually literally see them on map. I don't know if you can hear the artillery fire uh, going on uh, right around us. But it is a very active location right now. As I said, we're about three miles off the Gaza border. And, and Poppy and Phil, I just want you to look behind me because on this ridge, uh, Albert, uh, our, our photojournalist, is zooming in right now. And these are some of those Israeli forces that you just heard about massing. What we see here uh, are armored tanks. Uh, we see armored personnel carriers. And we counted just along this one ridge about 15 bulldozers and heavy bulldozers, obviously, military bulldozers. And obviously that's significant in the context of where we are, three miles from the Gaza border, uh, an ominous sign of what a ground invasion would look like and what it would really entail when you talk about two million people uh, so densely packed on the other side of that border. And as we were here, uh, you know, an airstrike uh, that we heard, um, one where uh, we literally ducked for cover as we heard it, uh, as we're standing here pausing, within a few seconds, up to 20 people uh, in Gaza were killed in that airstrike. So that's what's literally going on at this moment. Very active. And of course, uh, just a few miles from here in Stederot, where Nick Robertson has been, obviously very active there too, as well, with a lot of sirens and rockets uh, incoming. Aaron, as we just talked about these 300,000 troops, artillery, uh, tanks amassed near the border, it comes at the same time as the White House. Jake Sullivan at the White House said yesterday that they are not expecting 
Israel to pursue a siege, that word being critical of Gaza. How does that translate to what you're seeing on the ground? I know it's impossible to predict what's going to happen, but you're there. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, when you look at what we're seeing behind us, and this is an open field, so um, they're not just sitting here, right? They're sitting here with a purpose, right? They're, they're sitting here with the purpose of going in an invasion. That's, that's why they're here. Um, and obviously, when you think about Gaza already, you know, what does the word siege mean? You have 263,000 yeah. people already displaced, according to the UN poppy. And, you know, they say already there's been disruption because of infrastructure strikes by Israel. So sewage is piling up on the streets. Two of their three mobile, major mobile communications uh, networks or uh, centers are already down. Uh, so the situation there already very dire, depending on what word you you use. Mm -hmm. And I should also say, Phil and Poppy, you know, while we're here, I don't want to imply that they're already sitting here and there isn't more being added. We see active military, um, Israeli military going by on the road right in front of me. And as they go by uh, on the top of their their armored vehicles, there will be someone on the top with a heavy machine gun um, manning that heavy machine gun. Uh, so they are very actively moving in uh, to this area, even mm. as we speak. When you talk about that 300,000, that is literally uh, soldier after soldier moving in. Aaron, I, th I think there's been a lot of sense of an inevitable uh, ground incursion. We have no idea what the timeline is. We only know what Israeli officials have said publicly at this point. Given what you've seen at this point on the ground, do we have any sense of timeline? Well, I can tell you what the, the feeling is and the perception is from people around here is that it's imminent. That doesn't mean that it is, but that is definitely the feeling and the perception. And I had a conversation uh, with a former deputy defense minister here, uh, Danny Danone, uh, also former uh, Israeli ambassador to the U.N., uh, and his point of view was it is inevitable because what is Israel supposed to do when you have this much death uh, in a terror strike on your country that they are really left, they feel, with no other option? You, you heard the defense minister yourself saying uh, all the gloves are off. All restraints was the word that was used. All restraints are off for IDF forces occupying uh, who, who may uh, go in uh, to Gaza. What does that actually mean? We don't know. But as I said, they are here. They are in open air. They are very visible to uh, any militants in Gaza who, as I said, are just a few miles away. There's no attempt here to disguise what their plans are or where they are. And as I said, I don't know if you can hear it, but you do hear a regular uh, fire and artillery here over uh, in the distance behind me. All right, Aaron, live near the Israel-Gaza border. We're going to be checking back with you throughout the morning. Thank you very much. More on the military side of this operation. The IDF announcing just hours ago that it struck what it called a Hamas advanced detection system for aircraft, as well as bank branches Hamas is allegedly used to fund terrorism and other sites. All of this happening while, as Aaron was just reporting, Israeli troops amassed near the Gaza border. Joining us now is CNN military analyst and retired Air Force Colonel Cedric Layton. Uh, Colonel Layton, we've seen over the course of the last several days, I think, the ramping up of these airstrikes, the, obviously the building up of Israeli troops on the border. What does this mean in terms of preparations for what could be an incursion that does not have any precedent based on this conflict? Yeah, Phil, this is actually going to be quite uh, quite something because the type of incursion that we're looking at here uh, is one that could 
conceivably uh, affect everything right in here. And what I mean by that is this. Let's take a look and uh, put some troops out, out in this area right here. This is really what, what you're going to be seeing in these areas. And when you, uh, when you see some of these uh, areas right here in Gaza, you're going to be finding a very difficult area for them to get into. And as Aaron was talking about, uh, you've got a lot of different... Um, different areas in which uh, the Israelis are going to be responding to each of these these areas. And you've got uh, really a response that is uh, calculated to, I think, eliminate a lot of what Hamas's fighting capability is. When we see that, uh, we'll know it, uh, but it looks like the invasion is more inevitable than it was just 24 hours ago. What about what we've seen develop overnight, and that is the IDF announcing they're striking inside of Lebanese territory. Since Saturday, there had been some strikes from Hezbollah in the south of Lebanon into Israeli territory. But what does this development mean? So some of the strikes right here, Poppy, uh, into Lebanon are actually quite important because what the Israelis are trying to do is they're trying to warn uh, the Hezbollah forces and any other forces that are arrayed in Lebanon. There are several other militias there. They're trying to warn them to stay out of this. Uh, Hezbollah has basically made noises that they would be supporting uh, Hamas in Gaza and that they would provide some type of aid potentially uh, to them in any of these areas. But that is the kind of thing that we uh, that we see here. And what we could have happen is uh, basically a multi-front war. Uh, if that happens, that could create some, uh, some major problems for Israel, uh, because if they work here and here, uh, they could, in fact, have to divide their forces. And that is something that they're going to have to uh, be very careful about. But right now, a large portion of their forces are in Gaza or near the Gaza border. Uh, but they also have a, a large portion that is facing mm. the Hezbollah forces in Lebanon in the north. Colonel Lane, we just showed some video just last hour, I believe, the first plane carrying U.S. ammunition uh, landed in Israel. That's in addition to U.S. military personnel who have come into the region, obviously, uh, a, a warships were sent into the region as well. How critical are the supplies as U.S. efforts to continue to supply Israel, given what's expected in the weeks ahead? These supplies, Phil, are critical. And the reason for that is that all of the things that are provided right here are really just-in-time uh, provisions for the Israeli military. They need our support because they don't have uh, the stockpiles uh, to carry this operation out uh, in, in a way that would allow for them to respond to what has happened uh, to them in, in these areas around Gaza. So what they need is as much ammo as they possibly can get. Uh, they will need intelligence support. They will need some other types of special operations support. And these are the kinds of things uh, that are going to be part of this whole effort. Uh, so we can expect more flights like the one we just saw coming into Israel to provide that, that level of support. And that's going to continue for as long as this lasts. All right, Colonel Cedric Layton, thank you very much. The U.S. government sending a message to Hezbollah. You just heard the colonel talking about that, saying stay out of the war in Israel. That's a quote. We have new reporting on that ahead. And we're learning more about the barbaric nature of the Hamas attacks. New remarks by Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu saying that their tactics make them, quote, worse than ISIS. We were struck Saturday by uh, an attack whose savagery I can say we have not seen since the Holocaust. I mean, we had hundreds massacred, 
families wiped out in their beds and their homes, women brutally raped and murdered, over a hundred kidnapped, including children. They're even worse than ISIS. Welcome back. Well, as journalists are trying to keep the world informed about this war, some are paying with their lives. Press freedom organizations say at least seven journalists have been killed since Hamas launched its attack. Three were shot and killed in Gaza. One died with her family when an Israeli airstrike hit their home. A new video this morning shows the funeral procession for two members of the press who died in a bombing on a civilian building in Gaza. What you see there uh, covered in white sheets, also with those iconic press helmets placed on their bodies as a tribute to their work. A third journalist was also killed in that same bombing. Well, new reports say Israel is counter-striking inside Lebanese territory after anti-tank missiles were launched at an Israeli military post near the border. Lebanese military militant group Hezbollah said it fired on an Israeli site in response to the killing of three of its members on Monday. Now the U.S. and its allies are warning Hezbollah not to take advantage of Israel's war with Hamas and risk escalating the conflict. Here's Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin speaking just about an hour ago. No other party hostile to Israel should try to exploit these despicable attacks. CNN's Natasha Bertrand joins us live from the Pentagon. Natasha, the unequivocal drumbeat from U.S. officials repeating that over and over again. What is the level of concern right now that other actors, including Hezbollah, will get involved? Well, Phil, U.S. officials are extremely concerned that Hezbollah could take advantage of this chaos to move to enter the conflict. And they have been sending messages to Hezbollah through a number of channels, including the Hezbollah-aligned Speaker of Lebanon's parliament, uh, to warn them not to join the war and that if they do, there will be consequences. Now, France has also been sending messages to Hezbollah through is uh, at the request of Israel and in coordination with the U.S., warning them not to get involved because it could have devastating uh, ramifications. Now, at this point, U.S. officials tell us, as well as Western diplomats, that uh, Hezbollah does not appear particularly eager uh, to join the conflict. According to one Western diplomat, quote, the pre-existing will of Hezbollah is there not to escalate for now. But look, uh, U.S. officials are not taking any chances here. And for that reason, uh, they are backing up their warnings with action. And that is exactly why we saw the U.S. move uh, that aircraft carrier to the eastern Mediterranean as a deterrence measure uh, to warn any potential nations as well as non-state actors, including uh, you know Hezbollah and other groups, uh, against taking action and joining this war in force. Uh, here's what Jake Sullivan, the national security advisor, said about this just yesterday. Let me be clear. We did not move the carrier for Hamas. We moved the carrier to send a clear message of deterrence to other states or non-state actors that might seek to widen this war. Now, there are a number of downsides for Hezbollah to joining this war. It would have a number of political and economic risks that U.S. officials don't believe they are willing to take right now. Uh, but look, U.S. officials are concerned that some kind of escalation could even happen, uh, you know, unintentionally, that things could perhaps spiral out of control at that northern border. And we have already seen, as you mentioned in the intro there, Phil, a number of attacks back and forth between Hezbollah and the Israeli army. So far, no signs, as I mentioned, that, the Hez that, the, that Hezbollah is going to join the war in in force with the full strength of its uh, military might. It is a very sophisticated uh, military power. Um, but at this point, U.S. officials, they are just continuing to send these messages through back channels and hoping uh, that nothing uh, seriously escalates here.
Yeah, and that back and forth, we are seeing an effect there. It's not just shots back and forth. Three Israeli soldiers were killed in an attack on the border with Lebanon, according to the IDF, uh, that was released just moments ago. So we'll see how this continues to play out. The warnings, though, very clear. Natasha Bertrand, thank you. Well, today, Secretary of State Antony Blinken is expected to travel to Israel to reaffirm U.S. support after Hamas's devastating attack. And Blinken's trip comes on the heels of an impassioned speech yesterday afternoon from President Biden calling for Israel to take any necessary action to protect its citizens. Listen. My team has been in near constant communication with our Israeli partners and partners all across the region and the world from the moment this crisis began. We're surging additional military assistance, including ammunition and interceptors to replenish Iron Dome. We're going to make sure that Israel does not run out of these critical assets to defend its cities and its citizens. Joining us now from Tel Aviv, Michael Oren, former Israeli ambassador to the United States. Also joining us this morning, CNN Global Affairs analyst Kim Dozier. Appreciate you both being here very much. And Kim, your analysis was really helpful after we heard the president speak yesterday, um, not calling for restraint from Israel. Uh, can you speak to what you see as a narrow window that Israel has to fully respond here? Well, they're already circling Gaza with 300,000 troops, but reports are coming out as they pounded the area with airstrikes, softening it up, taking out possible opposition before uh, moving in, that civilian casualties are growing. Hospitals are reporting being overwhelmed with casualties, having supplies running out, and also full of Palestinian families that don't know where else to go, don't have bomb shelters, uh, UN schools where they shelter, those are all full. Uh, they can't get over the borders, so they're crowding into hospitals. Those are the kind of photos, videos that are flooding the Arab world and will eventually cause, um, especially once an incursion happens, the more civilian casualties are reported, that's going to cause international outcry. Whereas right now, the focus is still, at least in the West, on the atrocities committed, the deaths of Israeli citizens in the attack on Saturday. Ambassador, to, to Kim's point, uh, the White House, the administration is very aware of this fact and that reality. And yet the speech from President Biden yesterday was among, if not the most impassioned speeches I've seen him give. And I've watched him fairly closely over the last two and a half years. Um, you're also a historian, uh, along with your role uh, as a former ambassador. Put that into context. What happened yesterday? Uh, I got to put a finer point on it. It wasn't the most impassioned speech that President Biden has ever given, maybe on any subject. It was certainly the most impassioned uh, speech that any president has given in history uh, about the relationship between the United States and the state of Israel. Um, I was actually shocked. I've known Biden, Joe Biden for many years, and I know that he's deeply uh, concerned about the state of Israel. He loves the state of Israel. He comes here and describes himself as a Zionist, but that speech went far beyond it. He he, he connected Israel's pain to his personal pain, uh, the loss of family members. He went far further than I thought was possible in the American political context to say, we're going to use American force. Uh, that, that's really quite extraordinary. And to say he was going to work with a, a largely dysfunctional Congress to get aid for Israel, it was point after point after point that I, I really have never heard anything like it. But to get to Kim's point, there was also some messages behind the, behind the text. 
And one of them was, uh, we expect you, you have a green light to go ahead and enter Gaza in a ground invasion, but we expect you, you the Israelis, to act according to international law to the degree that you can. Um, don't create those bad pictures on the TV that's going to make it difficult for me to help you. And that's what I understood from that line. Ambassador, I wonder what you make of the argument Tom Friedman made in The New York Times. This was before the president's speech, but it was three things that he hopes for from President Biden. And one of them was to ask Israel the question as it considers what to do next in Gaza, quote, what do my worst enemies want me to do and how can I do just the opposite? He's arguing that the way that Hamas carried out this attack was also in an effort to get Israel to overreact. Now, I'm not sure what an overreaction is to this brutality, but his argument is do not get entangled into a situation that will look so much worse than the U.S. in Fallujah in 2004. I just wonder what you make of that argument. Well, it's an old argument, and I've you know, made it myself, which is we could invade Gaza. We could actually rid Gaza of Hamas, but at the end, we're going to be sitting there holding the keys to Gaza, and who's going to take the keys from us? And I think that this is a point in which we can enter into an intimate conversation with our American allies uh, about what to do with the morning after. Can mm-hmm. we think of in terms of, say, an inter-Arab force, uh, Saudi, Amirati forces that could uh, take over from us or some other type of international forum? Uh, can we think about some kind of involvement in the Palestinian Authority? It's, it, that's a very hard question. The Palestinian Authority last time was there was, was ousted by Hamas. Um, so it's a difficult question. I understand what uh, Tom Freeman is saying. Right now, Israeli public opinion is close to 100 percent behind a, a ground invasion, not to go back to that status quo ante at virtually any price. Kim, last word to you. The, the efforts from the administration to try and warn off not just Hezbollah, but other uh, actors in the region in trying to take advantage of this moment. But, but to the ambassador's point, behind the scenes right now, diplomatically, what conversations are happening? What are they trying to do uh, to create, at least lay the groundwork uh, as this invasion looms uh, for some type of resolution or endgame here? Well, we know that the White House has been working through Qatar and other Middle East diplomats to try to reason with Hamas to get some of the hostages, at least the women and children, released. But it hasn't happened yet. And the moment an invasion starts, I, I think diplomatic efforts are going to be off until uh, at least the opening days of the war. And from Israel's point of view, they've got to take out this apparatus that has grown much larger than they expected. They've got to find as many of the weapons caches, the the rocket stores as they can and take those out because it is an existential threat to their entire country. Iran knows, however, that uh, while it can get its allies on the ground to do harassing attacks, that were it to do something all out, were it to launch its own missiles at Israel, uh, then the U.S. is standing by to react. Kim Dozier, thank you as always. Ambassador Michael Oren, good to have you as well. Thanks. Well, CNN Audio has just launched Tug of War, Attack on Israel, a daily 10-minute podcast. CNN reporters take us on the ground and unpack what this escalating conflict means for the rest of the world. Well, a key part of the war is the hostage crisis unfolding inside Gaza. We're going to speak to a woman whose 80-year-old parents were kidnapped by Hamas. Their story, that's ahead. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. 
Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. As we continue to follow the breaking news, we want to take you straight to Aaron Burnett, who's on the border of Israel and Gaza. Aaron, what are you seeing right now? All right, we're going to let you all listen. We are right here. I'm, I'm next to the camera. Albert is filming. Uh, you can see some streaks in the sky. We have just seen the Iron Dome here, right about three miles from the Gaza border. Uh, a lot of it. There's one right over there coming in. You're going to hear it right up there. Got it? See if we can watch that one. And you can see those Iron Dome interceptions right above us. I'm letting you all listen. Not sure exactly how many we've counted there, a few dozen dozens of rockets coming in here. I don't know if you could get a sense, but sitting under this film and poppy, uh, there is a real sense literally of a dome. Because when you, the strikes come in, you you literally look straight above and you can see those, uh, those interceptions right above us. So we heard the sirens uh, a few moments before and then they literally came in. And uh, I think we're, we're all agreeing here. We think we heard about dozens. Uh, obviously very active. As I said, we're about three miles from the Israel-Gaza border. And by the way, it's a sunny day here. Uh, what you're, you're looking at straight behind me here, Albert's panning up. You can see the sun block. That is a giant smoke cloud from a strike in the direction of Gaza. We can't tell you who, who is responsible for that smoke or that strike exactly where it is, but that's what you're looking at right there. And you can still hear some of this residual rockets uh, still coming in here. And then when we look up here, as I said, a dome, when you see the streaks, they literally streak above you on an arc in a dome shape, like a plains trail, but a dome literally straight above your head. And now you can hear uh, Air Force jets. One thing I will say, Phil and Poppy, uh, as we send it back to you, is I don't know if you noticed, but amidst all of this, there are still some traffic going by. I know most of them are, are military going in and out of that zone, but 
that there is still that happening amidst this onslaught that you and uh, we all just witnessed together that is still continuing here, Phil and Poppy. Erin, uh, it, it's extraordinary to see. And just I know as you were reporting and we're asking you questions, if you and the crew need to take cover, please do. But one of the key questions when the surprise attack was launched over the weekend was, why wasn't the Iron Dome more effective? Well, clearly it is highly effective now. I mean, it is incredible, Poppy. And I know, you know, you've seen from the incredible reporting of Nick and Clarissa when they've been experiencing this as well. But when they call it an Iron Dome, and I'm, I'm sort of looking around at our team right now, I think we, we understand what that feels like. That you're sitting under it and they're coming in and there is obviously the adrenaline and the reality of where you are. But to actually watch it, as I said, in that dome, intercepting is a, is a pretty incredible thing to witness firsthand. Um, you hear the sirens now. Those are coming over from the direction uh, of, of Gaza. There's an industrial park uh, right behind where we've seen those troops. And anyone who was with us at the top of the hour, you're right, Albert. Sorry, uh, Poppy and Phil. We're really um, we're along sort of a steep embankment uh, by a ditch by the side of the road. Albert's now showing you the uh, military. Israeli military massing that we had showed you at the top of the hour from a different angle. Uh, but what we've seen here, battle tanks, armored vehicles, all of those bulldozers, all of that's happening here. And even between when I was with you at the top of the hour and now we're here, we've seen buses of Israeli defense forces uh, pulling in there and uh, uh, Israeli defense forces getting out just of, in mass off of buses and joining this group here on this ridge, as I said, about three miles from the Gaza border. Bill and Poppy. Aaron, can I ask you, you know, I think everybody talks about the Iron Dome, I think has some concept of it, but, but watching it live and in person, you know, there's almost yes. a tempo to it, right? There's the sirens. You know that there's been a, a, a missile launch or strikes are incoming, and then you can almost count down to the interceptions and you and Albert, Albert did an amazing job of catching it live. Can you explain kind of how the cadence of how this all plays out when it's effective? Yes, I mean, so it, it's, it's obviously, we've all talked about how different it is from, you know, a place like Ukraine, uh, when, you know, you hear the sirens and those missiles could be coming from very far away and life very much continues as normal. I've been in a cafe in Kyiv and, and life continues as the air raid sirens are going. People don't run for cover. Um, it is very different here. Obviously, the proximity uh, from which the rockets are, are being fired is very close, right? Right now, we're, we're three miles away from the actual border of Gaza, uh, although we can't tell exactly where the rockets are coming. You hear an Air Force jet. So part of that cadence you're talking about, Phil, you hear the sirens. It's usually just a few seconds you can count. I hear sirens in the distance now. Then you start to hear the explosions and then the sky lights up if there's a lot of incoming. And as I, as you all saw, uh, that was a barrage of dozens we saw a few moments ago. And there you go. So that's the cadence you're talking about. I think that was right over there. And then they leave Phil and Poppy because uh, Albert's pointing at one right now. You see that sort of like little bubble, like a little yeah. mini cloud. Yep. That's what you see peppering the sky along what literally above us is shaped like a dome. So there, there are some of those to the left and some of those to the, to the right, as well as the giant uh, smoke that I showed you behind me in the direction of Gaza. There's also some uh, towards the direction of Gaza, but uh, a little bit more to my one o'clock uh, from where I'm, I'm sitting here on the edge of this ditch. 
Aaron, I'm, I'm interested in when you are not on camera with us. Obviously, we saw you yesterday afternoon for your program last night, this morning, but you were in Tel Aviv and now you traveled here. What are citizens telling you? What are people coming up on the street and talking to you? What are they saying? I'm not hearing them. Okay, it sounds like Aaron can't hear us. Are you hearing them? So we're going to try to get back to her as soon as possible, but that was remarkable. And we'll get back to Aaron very soon. I also, I mean, I think what's most, and uh, our photojournalist, immensely talented, uh, Albert Luton on the ground, and also Aaron, is to see it in person. I feel like we talk about it, the concept of it, the, the kind of theoretical, almost in abstract, when you talk about the policy of funding the Iron Dome or sending munitions over for you the Iron Dome. see how effective it can be. To watch it work in practice. And I think Aaron's analogy, too, to what they've seen in Ukraine, given how fast things are moving, how close in proximity they are, you saw it on the ground right now. It's a very different experience. We want to bring in... Uh, Colonel Cedric Layton. Uh, Colonel, I think what we're trying to, Aaron did such a great job of laying out both what was happening in real time and I think the broader context of things. Um, talk about the, the system itself, what we were watching live uh, and, and what it actually does. Yeah, so this is a, a great point, Phil. One of the key things about the Iron Dome is that it's designed to knock out missiles and rockets that are coming into Israel. So it was designed by the Israelis, had a bit of American Wait, Colonel Layton, hang on. We're going to interrupt you real quick because we do have Aaron back. Um, but stay with us because we're still going back and forth. Well, it's right above us. Aaron, do, do we have you back now? All right, we're hot now. Uh, yes, you do. You do. Sorry, I don't know if you might have just missed we just had a whole lot of them come in if you give us another second we'll see if there are more okay very loud and close and they do uh to the cadence of the dome phil have a very different sound when they're straight above you obviously it's a lot louder than when you see them slightly on the horizon from your position Aaron, can you give us a sense of how often this is happening right now, at least based on your position since you've been there? We've obviously been talking to you since the top of the hour. I'd say since the top of the hour here, we're about 30 minute, 38 minutes into your show. I mean, dozens upon dozens of rockets have come into this uh, right above us and on the horizon near Gaza from where we are. And it's been every few minutes. So you, we, we had a barrage that you all saw uh, live on the show. Uh, of dozens of them, then there was a two or three minute break. If that, then there were more. Two about a minute ago, right before you just uh, talked to me, Phil, and we'll we'll see what happens here. But the sirens continue to go off, and as we discussed, that usually means, at least from what we've seen, uh, you know, within seconds you start to see the kinetic action start. And Aaron, the shot that Albert is showing us right now is zooming in on all the military equipment that you are so close to. Us, he got it so close we could even see the Israeli. Flag there, And one of the questions I had before we lost you a second ago, the connection was what you're hearing from when you're not on camera with us, what you're hearing from citizens who live near there, what they are saying to you about all of this and how protected they now feel by the dome. You know, Poppy, they, there is a sense of protection, but they take these air raid sirens extremely seriously. People do immediately seek cover because, as I said, it isn't an abstract uh, possible fear uh, such that we've experienced uh, in a place like Ukraine. Uh, but I will tell you one anecdote, just you know, a couple kilometers from where we are right now. Uh, we had gone out for just a couple of moments and a man came up to us at a gas station, which was closed because of everything going on here. Uh, with food wrapped in tinfoil. 
handmade pastries mm. and said, these are for you. And we said, oh, no, no, please give them to someone who needs them. And he said, you know, journalists need food, too. Oh. Uh, so there's there's a great spirit of generosity uh, that, that we've experienced ourselves among people who are still living right here uh, so close to this line. That's very I mean, I'm so glad that you shared that with us. It shows and brings to the fore the humanity um, uh, and what is going on just human to, to human in these moments. But Aaron, the, the fact that there are many people still living right there, many have, have not left the border area where you are, is that right? No, that, that is right. That's what we've seen. And obviously we haven't been in in uh, too many settlements around here, but there are definitely people who are here. We were at the gas station, a woman came up uh, and was frustrated it was closed, but um, you know, there 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 is life here, mm -hmm. uh, but obviously this is not operating as usual in any way, shape or form. And the roads are pretty much empty, uh, except for military vehicles and some very fast moving vehicles. You know, we've seen, for example, a, a heavily armored cars uh, go through some marked with consular markings that have actually gotten through the checkpoint uh, that we're standing near. Uh, Albert's showing you the checkpoint right now that have actually gone through that checkpoint, which heads down to uh, Stederot, where there is more active, we understand, still uh, direct one-on-one -on -one, uh, skirmishing and fighting going on. Aaron, you pointed this out earlier, but I, I want to swing back to it. The, the smoke clouds, which we could actually see, I actually thought it was a cloud, into uh, a dark cloud until you made clear it's a sunny day. That dark cloud is actually smoke from Gaza City. Yes. I, I know you've been talking about that you've been hearing uh, fighter jets also come over the top as the Iron Dome has been in action. Do we have any sense in terms of the scale of the, the strikes from the Israeli side in Gaza over the course of the last hour or so? Um, I, I can't tell you exactly the scale, but I can tell you that when I was standing about where we're standing now by this by this ditch, uh, we heard um, we heard Israeli uh, military jets. We heard an explosion. And then within a few moments, we did hear about a successful Israeli strike within Gaza uh, that we understand might have been uh, on a refugee camp, and that strike killed up to 20 people. And I will say, Poppy, you mentioned the humanity of it. And amidst all of this, there are moments where you sit here and you think in that moment, we dove, dove for cover, grab our helmets, um, and we're thinking, okay, everything okay here. And in that moment, you know, maybe 20 people died. Yeah. And it, it, it is worth considering that what we're talking about when you hear these booms and you see all these lights is that it is human life that is being extinguished with every single one of these strikes. And it is it is very important, I think, for all of us to remember that of what is at stake here. Of course. And what is happening off camera when we hear these sounds and we see you and your team. We have some video here of moments yes. like that that we're going to show as we continue to talk to you, Aaron. But absolutely what is happening Let's just take a moment and listen here. Um, just, okay. All right, you're coming to us. We're gonna, we're gonna be. I'm not gonna be on camera, okay? Come to us. You can come to us. Jump down. Jump down. Okay. Aaron, you've covered war and conflict all over the world. Can you speak about this compared to? Obviously, you've been in Ukraine many times since the beginning of that war. I will say, and I know that 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 all all of us here have talked about this: the difference in scale. Mm. Uh, that Israel is a very small country. We're three miles from the Gaza border. We're we're also 
just under an hour, about an hour's drive from Tel Aviv, yeah. right? You're talking about incredibly small distances here. It's small distances for rockets to travel. It's small distances for human beings to travel. Uh, it's people that are so close together. When you talk about uh, the fear of infiltration uh, and terrorist activity, right? It's all because of its proximity uh, that you're talking about tunnels from Gaza uh, that come here, that they're still worried that maybe they don't even know where all the tunnels may be in places like Stedera, where they're worried uh, that more Hamas militants are coming in, that maybe they're not de dealing with ones who came in in the initial surge and are still here, uh, that maybe more are coming in. It is the incredibly tight proximity within, within which all of this is happening uh, that strikes me the most. And Phil, that plays out in the cadence also of the strikes, you know, from alarm to sound to strike, right? It's a boom, boom, boom. Uh, whereas in Ukraine, you may get an alert. Uh, that there's been an action of a Russian bomber and that that puts an entire region under alert. And you hear those sirens and they're eerie and, and they're, of course, frightening for people there. But there's much less of a certainty about where something may happen. Yeah, it's such great perspective. Um, Aaron, stay with us. We're going to be coming back to you, of course, throughout the course of the show. Keep you and your team safe. And as Poppy always says, if, if you and Albert need to take cover at any point, please uh, do so. Come back to us. Yeah. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. So there have been arrests, suspensions, disciplinary hearings. They're shutting down graduation events. At this moment, the part of the protests that are admirable are young people calling attention to atrocities. Michael Roth is the president of Wesleyan University. I would like to make a space for them to do that, as long as that space doesn't prevent other people from pursuing their education. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. I want to turn now back to Cedric Layton. Uh, Colonel Layton, Aaron's point there, I think, is so important in terms of just how tightly condensed. We talk about how tightly condensed Gaza is, but Israel itself uh, in where they are both uh, in the midst of a fight right now uh, with Hamas and Gaza, which is expected to expand, but also as they keep an eye on the north, uh, there have been back and forth uh, shots exchanged with Hezbollah, obviously keeping an eye on the West Bank, Syria as well. Talk about the region itself and just how small this area is for which Israel is operating it. Yeah, Phil, this is, you know, an incredibly different perspective. And as Aaron was mentioning, Ukraine, kind of like Texas in terms of size. Uh, this, we're talking like, uh, you know, basically Delaware and a bit of Maryland right here. So in essence, what you've got here is a country that, uh, you know, from where Aaron is about here uh, to go up here is about an hour's drive, uh, another uh, three hours or so, you get up to the northern border, uh, perhaps even less, depending on how fast you can go. And this gives you an idea that when you're in a country like this, uh, you are within range of so many different uh, threats. And you look, for example, when you when you have the big region up here, you can see that, for example, Iran uh, has the capacity to move missiles over this way. So that would be one thing that could happen. You could have Iran go in and try to attack uh, in, in sympathy potentially with Hamas. Uh, that is a, a technical possibility, not saying that they're going to do that, but that's the kind of thing. The distances are so small uh, that it could easily happen. And that's the kind of thing that you're dealing with when you've got such compact area, all of your people within this space, and really a very narrow uh, link here between, say, the West Bank 
and uh, the coast. And that means that Israel is at risk of uh, you know, potentially being cut, uh, cut off in several different ways. Hmm. At least that was the case early in the Israel's history. Now, not so much because the armies aren't, aren't focused on that, the Arab armies. But that's the kind of thing that technically could happen. And it really has concentrated the Israeli mind on how to protect itself and make that country uh, really a bastion of, of uh, you know, incredible defenses. And that's why the history of Israel has become so important in yeah. the way this has actually functioned. Speaking of incredible defenses, let's get back to the prior question that Phil asked you, which I think so many Americans, so many people around the world watching this and watching Erin's live reporting with her photojournalist, Albert, of the live interceptions by the Iron Dome of these rockets. Can you just, in basic terms, explain to people how it works and why it is so effective when it is working at full capacity? Yeah, when it's working at full capacity, Poppy, this thing is amazing. So uh, basically what you have is uh, the capability to send about, uh, depending on how it's all set up, about 90 missiles after one specific missile. So what you're seeing here in some of these pictures, this is the result of actually coming in to find that what they do is they find a, an incoming rocket or missile. And as they find that missile, they go after it and they will intercept that missile in the air. Uh, the idea is to, in essence, use an explosive to knock it out of the sky and uh, bring it down. That's why there can be damage uh, when it comes down, mm -hmm. uh, even though it's been intercepted. So it's not a riskless in endeavor. Uh, but the Iron Dome is designed to knock out as many missiles as possible. But it really depends on the trajectory of things that are coming in. So if, for example, uh, something is fired in a very quick fashion uh, and it uh, comes in a, at a very low altitude, it's harder to intercept. So there's a lot of geometry involved in this, mm -hmm. but the basic idea is you knock something, you knock an incoming uh, rocket out of the sky, it's kind of like a bullet shooting a bullet out of the sky. And that's basically what you have here. Very precise, very important weapon system, but a system that is necessary for Israel uh, to really defend itself and in some ways for Israel to even exist as a, as a separate state. Yeah. yeah, as we've just seen in action. Colonel Cedric Layton, stand by. Thank you very much. We're definitely going to be coming back to you throughout the course of the show. I want to turn now, though, to Sharon Lifshitz's elderly parents. They are both missing at this hour. They, among, they are among the hostages kidnapped by Hamas militants from their kibbutz in southern Israel, right by the Gaza border. They were last heard from Saturday morning when they were taking shelter in their safe room. Their daughter, Sharon, joins us now. Um, thank you very much for your time. I, I want to start with... Uh, if you've heard any information whatsoever about the whereabouts of your parents, about what may have happened over the course of the last several days. I have um, not heard where my parents are. I have heard about other members that we do know have been kidnapped. We have uh, a, a, um, witnesses that are say, telling us the story of what happened on that day. And, and if I may ask, what, what is the story of what happened? Um, my parents themselves were in their house, in their home on the border of the Gaza Strip, the kibbutz that I am from, near Oz. They are seen here just uh, walking on the, next to the fence. 
um, is about uh, less than a mile than the Gaza Strip. They were uh, they were in the safe room, which is her bed, their bedroom, because of uh, because of um, missiles that were started a bit before. And under the missiles, the Hamas broke uh, the fence and came very quickly with a lot of people. We were one of the first places to come into, um, and when they came, they massacred members. They have taken many hostages. We now know of at least uh, close to 80 people that are missing. They've, we don't know the number of dead yet. We know in neighboring kibbutzes, we have 108. We have even higher number in Kfar Aza, and we've all seen this morning the pictures. We have been slaughtered. We have been destroyed, and that is not what I'm here to talk to you about. I'm here to talk to you about the 80 kids and adults and elderly people that are one amongst the 150 or so we know of that have been taken hostage into Gaza. They are at this moment in Gaza. I have heard a rumor, and rumors is mostly what we have heard in the last few days, that uh, there is about to be um, video surfacing of hostages pleading for their life. This is a very crucial moment. We have no time to think about the dead. We have no time to think about the belongings and homes and environment we have lost. We have to immediately call on anyone we can to ask for the immediate release of babies and children and disabled people and elderly people. Have you received any word notification uh, or assistance from the Israeli government based on those calls in this very critical moment? Um, we are in touch with people. Most of what we get at the moment is rumors. We haven't had the prime minister coming to visit us. Uh, the survivors are in a Latin. No member of the government has come to visit. I know they have a war to run, but they've brought it on us. And they need to take responsibility. And more than that, they need to confirm that they will protect these people, that they will not just go after and fight after and not protect. We are in Gaza now. My parents are in Gaza. My, my friends' children are in Gaza. This is a desperate moment. We are calling on the international community to do everything they can to de-escalate, to bring about an exchange of uh, and return home of these innocent, innocent, peace-loving people. Uh, before I let you go, I read that your father actually volunteered for an organization uh, that would drive sick Palestinians to receive medical care. Can you talk about your mom and dad? My mom was a photographer. She was uh, t she taught photography. She had many generation of uh, children that grew up uh, being with her being uh, the teacher. She is a loving member of the community. My father has been a peace activist for all his life. He has many Palestinian friends. He has many uh, Arab friends and Bedouin friends. He worked for peace all his life in every capacity, and he has, since retirement for the last 10 years or so, um, spent at least one day a week, but often two, taking the car, taking it to the uh, Erez crossing, and acknowledging and sharing in the sheer humanity 
of us, all of us, all of us human beings. He will take sick Palestinians and he will take them to the hospitals in East Jerusalem and in other parts of Israel, and then he will take them back. Sharon uh, Lefritz, we, we obviously, we've heard for you and your family having to deal with this. We hope uh, and pray for the well-being of your parents uh, and those in their community. Thank you so much for sharing your time and your story. Thank you. Thank you. I mean, just for a moment, and I'm going to tell you, these are live images out of Ashkelon, Israel, following strikes from Gaza. You see the fire burning there. But, Phil, to what she just said, you heard the pain in her voice pleading with forces as whatever comes next from Israeli forces to remember who is being held there as well. Underscoring the just sheer complexity of exactly. this and talking about That's humanity, exactly right. uh, it's it is extraordinarily yeah. not just complicated. It, it is from a human perspective. It's it's horrifying choices ahead. And we will be joined by a representative from the IDF straight ahead. Stay with CNN. More CNN this morning to come after the break. You're looking at smoke plumes rising live images out of Gaza right now, where it is the middle of the afternoon as we follow the latest developments out of the region. In the meantime, in Washington, a significant day. In just a few hours, House Republicans hold their first secret ballot for a speaker nominee ahead of a final floor vote. Last night, Majority Leader Steve Scalise, Judiciary Chairman Jim Jordan, made their final pitches at a forum where they took questions from other members of the caucus. Kevin McCarthy urging his supporters not to renominate him for the job that he lost last week, but he's not endorsing any candidate at this point either. Lauren Fox on the Hill uh, with all of this. I mean, what is happening, the war that is raging uh, between Israel and Hamas and the ongoing war on Ukraine just heightens the importance of a speaker and the House getting back to work. Yeah, Poppy, we've talked about it so much, but it's so important to underscore without a House speaker, there is nothing that Congress can do for Israel. They cannot pass a resolution, even vowing support for that nation. And that is what is looming over this day today on Capitol Hill. We don't know if by the end of the day there is going to be a speaker. They are expected to go into a room at 10 a.m. this morning, perhaps have a vote on a rules change that would raise the threshold for how many votes you need to be the next speaker of the House. And then they will go into a secret ballot voting situation where they could do multiple rounds of balloting voting today in that room. Do they emerge with consensus? Do they emerge with a speaker that can win on the floor? That remains to be seen. And again, it is so important to put this in context of what is happening in the rest of the world. The United States Senate is on recess this week. They are not in Washington. But until the House of Representatives can find a speaker, they can do nothing for Israel. They can do nothing to deal with the government funding deadline that is coming up on November 17th. And I will tell you, multiple members coming out of a private meeting last night on Capitol Hill were extremely extremely clear. They are not confident that today ends with a new Speaker of the House. Poppy, Phil. Lauren Fox, thank you for the reporting. And CNN This Morning continues right now. 
Israel right now preparing for a ground invasion of Gaza that appears to be imminent. And these Iron Dome interceptions, active rockets coming in from Gaza. In a minute, it can be all the war everywhere. I just covered myself with dead people, just waiting for dying. They don't have mercy for no one. Better to be dead than be kidnapped. The condition of my friends, my family who survived is unspeakable at this point. Whole families were executed. Parents, children, people even beheaded. It must be crystal clear. We stand with Israel. There's no justification for terrorism. He has deployed hostage recovery experts. He has offered to share intelligence. There are the sirens going off again. There will be retribution and there will be retaliation. It was not just barbaric treatment. It was the utter destruction of our communities. The effect of these attacks really uniting Israel as the country braces itself for what will be the next stage. Good Wednesday morning, everyone, and we are staying with the breaking news. I'm Phil Mattingly with Poppy Harlow in New York. Aaron Burnett is live for us near the Israel-Gaza border. It is 7 a.m. here on the East Coast, 2 p.m. in Gaza, where the war between Israel and Hamas is rapidly intensifying. And we're following breaking developments on multiple fronts. the scene over Gaza. This morning, the Israeli military says 300,000 troops with tanks and heavy artillery are massing near the Gaza border and getting ready to, quote, execute their mission as those airstrikes and artillery fire continue to rain down. This is an active situation, and our own Aaron Burnett had to take cover as Hamas returned fire with rockets. Come to us. You can come to us. Jump down. Jump down. Jump. Okay. Tell me when I go. Oh my God. This is the IDF is releasing this new video of a bombing of it bombing a university in Gaza hours ago. IDF officials say Hamas had turned it into a training center to make weapons. This is video of the destruction this morning in Gaza. The government there warning that all electricity will be cut off shortly. And right now, we do not know the fate of all of those hostages who were kidnapped from Israel and taken into Gaza by Hamas. President Biden has confirmed Americans are among the captives, and at least 20 U.S. citizens are unaccounted for at this moment. The death toll in Israel from Hamas's surprise assault over the weekend, that continues to rise. At least 1,200 people are now confirmed dead, and the scale of the savagery of this massacre continues to come to light. Overnight, the first round of weapons and ammunition from the United States arrived in Israel. You see it there being unloaded from that plane. We have team coverage around the region, also here at home. Let's start with Aaron Burnett again, right near the Gaza border. Aaron, extraordinary what you showed us last hour. Just reset the scene for everyone. So, Poppy and Phil, we are just about three miles from the Gaza border, uh, and you, you heard the sirens just there in that clip you played from a few moments ago when we were all together. Uh, we've been hearing regular uh, sirens, uh, some of them a little bit even far away to hear, some of them very close. 
And then within a few seconds, uh, a barrage of rockets. Earlier, a few moments ago, there were dozens and dozens of them. The entire Iron Dome, as it's called, really lighting up above us. And, you know, one thing that's important to keep in mind is that dome is designed to protect heavily populated Israeli areas. So uh, under uh, the city of Ashkelon uh, nearby, uh, it's designed to protect there, of course, in, in more uh, rural areas or fields, such as where we are, um, they're less likely to use it. So it, you have to be careful no matter where you are. And of course, pieces of those rockets can come down. But as we said, dozens and dozens of them being fired, uh, giant plumes of smoke uh, from impact. And on that front, we cannot tell you whether that impact came from Israeli strikes or whether that came from uh, Hamas rockets returning fire. Uh, but we can tell you we smell it. And it is that smell of war, heavy uh, industrial uh, burning metals and burning fuel uh, when we get those, the, the wind blows this way. As I'd said, it was a very brightly sunny day, and uh, and now the sun has been marred quite a bit uh, by that by that cloud uh, right behind me. And you can, I don't know if you could hear of a loudspeaker. Okay, um, we're going to be leaving. Are they? That is a checkpoint, and uh, I'll just say right now they're asking. Uh, us, any, any, any journalists here to leave. So, Poppy, I'm going to send it back to you. Uh, we're going to go ahead and do exactly as they say and, and move away from this area where uh, obviously we've seen so much incoming and outcoming fire yes. over this past hour. Aaron, go ahead with your team. We'll get back to you when it's possible and, and, and safer. Thank you very much for that reporting. And we want to go now to our colleague Jeremy Diamond. He joins us in southern Israel. Jeremy, what can you tell us and where are you roughly? Yeah, Aaron, uh, over my left shoulder here, you can see the city of Ashkelon. And then over my right shoulder, uh, you have the Gaza Strip. So that just gives you a sense of exactly where we're located right now. And we did just uh, hear all of those sirens in the city of Ashkelon and in other uh, cities in uh, around the Gaza Strip. We're just hearing now uh, from a Magen David Adom, that's the ambulance service, from a spokesman that there were uh, two injuries uh, from those rockets in Ashkelon. And, and I think you guys have images up. I can't see from here right now, but I think you guys have some images of the damage that is already being reported. And it's important to note that, look, the Iron Dome obviously takes out a large majority of the, of the rockets that are being fired from Gaza. But with every barrage of rockets, there is always this possibility of what we're seeing right now. Uh, big, massive structural damage, but also, of course, the possibility of injuries and the possibility of people being killed. And this is a kind of uh, a, the psychological impact as well of these constant barrages is people are on edge here. People, uh, you know, you do get the sense that this is a country on a war footing, but that it is also a country where people uh, are worried as they go about their lives here, as they try at least to maintain some semblance of normalcy. Just yesterday when we were in the city of Sterot, we had a woman who passed by our live shot location and asked us if we could accompany her to a gas station. Why? Because she was afraid. She was afraid of the rockets. She was afraid of a rocket hitting that gas station while she was simply trying to pump gas into her car. And that just gives you a sense of uh, the situation that people are living with here, the fear that some people have. At the same time, we get a sense of resiliency from others. We spoke with another woman also in the city of Sterot, uh, who uh, was delivering food to reservists. While we were speaking with her, we had uh, sirens go off, uh, uh, Iron Dome intercepts right above us. And as we went uh, into the shelter with her, I asked her, are you afraid? And she said, no. She said, 
When it's my time, it's my time. Uh, and, and, and that just gives you a sense of, of the other facet of this, which is the resilience of the people here uh, and the sense of defiance in the face of what has really been uh, a shock to the conscience here in Israel uh, as this surprise Hamas attack unfolded over the weekend. And we have seen continued barrages uh, unfold. And of course, as well, Israeli airstrikes bombarding the Gaza Strip, really pummel pummeling the Gaza Strip. And we have seen the casualty toll in Gaza also rising. Yeah, Jeremy, as you've been speaking, as you noted, we have had live pictures uh, to your side of Ashkelon where there had been a strike. It looks like those live pictures are now, there's a siren. It looks like they're moving for cover right now inside a market. You could see where the strike had occurred. The camera is off that now. And also onlookers looking around cars that had shrapnel inside. Uh, Jeremy, to that point, uh, the, both the, the very real and palpable fear, but also the resilience, the, the unity tied to that resilience in a country that at least politically had been fractured over the course of the last year plus. Uh, that derives in part from the fact 300,000 reserves have been called up. Do we have a sense right now in terms of the preparations for what is an expected ground invasion uh, at some point in the future? Yeah, sorry, Phil, I'm just looking behind me because we're hearing those familiar booms that indicate some kind of Iron Dome intercept, most likely. I think we might be able to see some of the uh, plumes of smoke in the air resulting from those interceptions. But this is kind of the cadence that you hear here. This is the soundtrack of life uh, along the Gaza border uh, in Israel right now. And now speaking to that sense of resilience you were talking about, this is a very small country. It, it is it is almost impossible to find someone uh, in Israel who is not connected in some way to the terrorist attacks that took place over the weekend. Everyone here knows someone who was injured, who died, who is who was taken hostage, who is still missing, uh, or, or who lived in an area that has been uh, facing rocket fire. This is just the reality here. And, you know, yesterday we were also speaking with uh, reservists. More than 300,000 military reservists have been called up for duty, one of the largest mobilizations in Israel's history. And, you know, they don't know exactly what's coming. They haven't gotten their orders yet other than to begin uh, gathering at rally points and to begin heading to their bases. But they are ready, they say. We spoke with one man yesterday, Arya Eastman. He is a U.S.-born uh, Israeli. He uh, served previously in the 2008-2009 Gaza War, and he is back for this. And he said... This time it feels different, in particular because of the position of weakness that Israel felt after it got that surprise attack from Hamas over the weekend. Um, you know, he feels like they got caught flat footed. But now he says he feels like they are getting their momentum back and they are ready for whatever comes next. Whether that is a ground invasion of Gaza, we don't know. You know, certainly. We have seen uh, Humvees uh, in this area, uh, troops beginning to mobilize, setting up at staging locations, uh, setting up tanks, setting up artillery at staging locations around the Gaza Strip. All of that is an indication of a possible ground invasion. But the question is a political one now. Has that decision been made by the Israeli Prime Minister Bibi Netanyahu? Will he move forward with that? There is certainly a sense when you talk to people here, everyday citizens in Israel, uh, that they want to see something, uh, a significant response to Hamas. They want to see a different response than in the past. It feels different uh, than in 2014, in 2021. Uh, we will see how massive the Israeli response is in the days to come. And, and whatever it is, the White House made clear yesterday President Biden standing side by side with Israel 
on this. Jeremy Diamond in southern Israel, thank you very much. We'll get back to you soon. I want to bring back in our military analyst, Colonel Cedric Layton. Can you talk to us about where, giving us a sense of, a, of where that strike took place in Ashkelon? Yeah, absolutely, Poppy. So basically, Ashkelon is right here. That strike uh, occurred right in the, it looks like right in the city center uh, of Ashkelon, which is a, a fairly large city uh, in southern Israel, south central Israel. Uh, Jeremy is right about here. Uh, and that, uh, you know, that indicates that, uh, you know, what you're seeing on the one side in Ashkelon is mirrored by stuff that is happening here in Gaza. So you've got all kinds of activity going on here. And clearly, uh, this war is heating up at this particular point. You've got a lot of things happening. Iron Dome trying to intercept missiles as they approach Ashkelon uh, may have been successful with that. Uh, but you've got all kinds of things happening uh, that indicate ground movement in addition to aerial movement, and that's complicating the picture at the moment. All right, Colonel Layton, stay with us. We'll be coming back to you throughout the course of the hour. I want to turn now uh, to the Biden administration response. President Biden confirming that Americans are known to be among the hostages held by Hamas after its rampage over the weekend. At least 20 Americans are currently unaccounted for in Israel, according to the administration, though it's not clear if they were all taken as hostages. We're learning more about some of them now. Adrian Netta is 66. Her son says that she used to be a nurse, then a midwife. Adrian's daughter and son were on the phone with her when they heard attackers break into her home, then a scream, then nothing. And 23-year-old Hirsch Goldberg Poland, we spoke to his parents. Hirsch loves music festivals and was at the music festival on Saturday when Hamas began taking hostages. His parents told us they'd heard he and a friend took grenades that landed in his shelter and threw them back out. He was badly injured. Relatives of people like Adrian and Hirsch asking for help from the U.S. government. The U.S. government has direct responsibility to the lives of the U.S. citizens that are held hostage by these terrorists. President Biden, well, we are sure his heart is in the right place when it comes to Israel and Secretary of State to do what they can to make this end for us as soon as possible. Joining us now is State Department spokesman Matthew Miller. Uh, Matt, I appreciate your time. I know that the administration has always made clear that this is the number one priority for them, U.S. citizens abroad. Um, how is the administration working to obtain information about these 20-plus individuals who are missing? Uh, thank you, Phil. Let me uh, first start by saying that, of course, my heart breaks hearing those accounts. Uh, I cannot imagine what these families are going through, both the families who we know have lost loved ones and the, and the families whose uh, uh, relatives are, remain unaccounted for. I can tell you that there is no higher priority for the president, no higher priority than this, uh, for the Secretary of State, than the safety and security of Americans overseas. Uh, that includes uh, Americans who are missing and it includes those Americans who we know, unfortunately, have been taken hostage by this brutal terrorist organization. What we have done over the past few days, the Secretary of State has been on the phone uh, since the, the early hours after this brutal attack to make clear to uh, any leaders in the region, once we knew that it did appear there were hostages who were taken, uh, that if they have any lines of communication with Hamas, any leverage, any influence with Hamas, they need to use that influence to tell Hamas one very simple and clear message, release all of the hostages now. The other thing we've been doing, as the president said, is making hostage uh, negotiation and hostage rescue experts from the United States government uh, available for consultation with uh, the Israeli government. That work is ongoing, uh, and we will continue to, um, uh, to pursue that work. 
It is our top priority to secure the release of these uh, hostages. It is a very difficult situation, but we will continue to work on it uh, to the greatest extent possible. Have those initial conversations related to uh, countries or leaders that may have contact with Hamas resulted in any type of conversations, consultation, negotiation related to the hostages? Uh, you know, I don't want to get into private diplomatic conversations. I don't think it would be productive. I don't think it would be useful to the situation and the ultimate goal that we're trying to achieve. I think we all need to recognize that this was a brutal terrorist organization uh, that we're talking about here, whose depravity was on display when we saw them uh, murdering civilians, children, women, uh, dragging a Holocaust survivor in a wheelchair across the border. So we uh, very much understand the nature of the group that, that uh, we are dealing with here. Uh, but that said, it is our top priority to try to get these uh, 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 hostages released, both the American citizens and, of course, the Israeli citizens. It's important to the Israeli government as well, and we're going to continue to work on that uh, 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 you know, as, as to the greatest extent possible. I guess to put a finer point on it, there's an understandable information vacuum here. Do you feel like you know any more today than you did yesterday about the missing Americans uh, that the president and Jake Sullivan, the national security advisor, referenced yesterday? Every day we get new information. Look, there's a list of Americans who we have confirmed dead. There are Americans who, are, are, who remain unaccounted for. I do expect that, unfortunately, that the list of Americans who are confirmed dead will rise today. Um, we continue to work through the list of unaccounted and find that, you know, obviously some of those we will, we will locate or who will report in. Some of them uh, we do find, unfortunately, that are deceased, and then others we were able to confirm uh, were taken hostage. So it's a moving target all the time. Um, but we always, uh, every hour, are achieving, are, are getting more information which um, uh, allows us to shape that we, the work that we do to try to protect the safety and security of Americans in Israel. So the president said yesterday, confirmed that 14 Americans uh, had been killed. Your expectation is that will rise? I do I expect that, unfortunately. Uh, in terms of American citizens that are in Gaza right now, uh, Jake Sullivan, when he was at the press briefing yesterday, said that there are ongoing diplomatic discussions, uh, obviously with Egypt, uh, with Israel, about... Uh, passage out. I want to play something for you from a Palestinian-American who spoke to our Jake Tapper yesterday. Take a listen. We tried to contact the U.S. Embassy so many times. Unfortunately, they couldn't help us at all. I contacted them through the phone, via email. I texted and I, I called different numbers, but nobody, uh, I couldn't hear back from any. We are all here feeling abandoned that, and we're feeling that we're left alone. So we're really looking for the U.S. Embassy uh, to help the U.S. citizens who are living in Gaza. Is it your understanding that there is a passageway out of Gaza for uh, American citizens or dual citizens at this point? Uh, there has been, and it is an issue that we continue to work on. As Jake Sullivan said yesterday, uh, we do think it's important that American citizens who are in Gaza be allowed to leave, and it's a, uh, an issue that we are working on. We're doing that quietly. Um, uh, like a lot of the diplomatic efforts we undertake, it's not something that is productive to speak about publicly, but it, um, uh, we do, it is something we're trying to achieve. And I will just say, when we say that the safety and security of Americans overseas is our first priority, that means American citizens anywhere, whether they be in Israel, whether they be in Gaza, whether they be anywhere in the world. So trying to, to help American citizens and protect them uh, is something that is a top priority for us, no matter where they may be located. Uh, Matt, last one, I'll let you go. It, it, connected to what we were just discussing, 
there were strikes yesterday near and around Rafa. I, I know there have been conversations uh, with the Egypt side in terms of how this can actually open up, how it can stay open at this point. I understand you don't want to telegraph them, but is there some immediate answer or solution, given the fact it seemed like that passageway was closed yesterday due to the strikes? Again, it's, a, it's an issue that we were working on. I don't think I can uh, provide a lot of details because it's an ongoing matter and the subject of private diplomatic uh, negotiations. But as I said, it is our pro top priority to protect the safety and security of Americans overseas. And I will also say that, that um, uh, you know, a as the, the president said yesterday, um, we don't want to see civilian deaths anywhere. Uh, we want to see civilians protected. We want to see civilians uh, uh, not targeted. We expect uh, Israel to follow the laws of, uh, of war. That's what democracies do. It is in clear contrast with the way Hamas has conducted itself when you see them targeting civilians, uh, slaughtering civilians and kidnapping civilians. So the protection of civilians and, of course, American citizens is, is a, a, a great priority for us and something that we'll continue to uh, make very clear uh, across the region. Will certainly be a focal point for the secretary as he heads uh, to Israel and to the region. Uh, Matt Miller, State Department spokesman, we appreciate your time. Thank you. Very Thanks, sad. Phil. Very sad update that they do expect more uh, American deaths as well. Of course, we'll keep you posted as we get those numbers. But coming up, we will also get an update this morning from the IDF following the strikes on Israel that we heard live on air just a short time ago. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Welcome back. These are new images uh, showing damage from strikes and counterstrikes in Israel and Gaza. You can see the smoke rising. Meanwhile, CNN correspondents on the ground have seen firsthand military equipment, a lot of it gathering at the border with Gaza. Joining me now from Tel Aviv, IDF spokesman Lieutenant Colonel Peter Lerner. Colonel, thank you very much for joining us. And I want to begin with the pressing question on everyone's mind. As our colleagues see your, your troops amassing at the border. What is the status of what many expect to be a full-scale uh, ground incursion of Gaza? Thank you very much. The main question is, how are we going to prevent Hamas from ever being able to attack us again? Um, the tools that the IDF has is military force. As you can see, we are conducting airstrikes, uh, uh, targeting Hamas's capabilities, making sure that they are on the run and that they cannot manage uh, another attack that, like they did on uh, Saturday, which has killed over 1,200 people, and that number keeps rising. So I would say the IDF is prepared, and we will take all measures, measures required in order to make sure that that can never, ever end. Uh, we are currently continuing to amass our forces, not only on the border with Gaza, because we also need to be prepared for what potentially could happen from Lebanon. That's right. Uh, last night we had mortar rounds also also from Syria. So we are at uh, top alert and we need to be prepared for a deterioration. Staying with Gaza for a moment, do you believe that, that Hamas can be decapitated, essentially completely the organization, without short of a ground invasion? I know that Hamas cannot be allowed to continue to play this two-handed, two, two hands of cards. Mm -hmm. One where they send attacks to us and one continue to govern un, 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 unhindered. So I would say they need to be dealt with. We can do that with a magnitude of tools. Mm -hmm. uh, a ground uh, invasion is one, mm -hmm. but I would say the most important question is 
How do we make sure that they never have the tools to attack us and butcher our families in their homes? Colonel, do you have any update you can share with us on the status of the hostages? My colleague Phil just asked the State Department, and I'll ask you the same question. Any update on hostages? I can't share anything with you, unfortunately. I would say this, though. Hamas are accountable and responsible for their well-being. They need to release them immediately. We are taking the fight to Hamas also because of this atrocity that they committed. We heard from the State Department just reiterating that the United States expects Israel to abide by the laws of war. We also heard from the White House yesterday saying that President Biden and Netanyahu also discussed how, quote, we distinguish between terrorists and innocent civilians when going in and striking in Gaza. How is the IDF making that distinction? Absolutely. We are targeting Hamas operational capabilities. They have embedded embedded themselves deeply within the civilian arena, within the urban areas, and putting the people, at, their own people, at risk. Mm-hmm. When they hide their tunnels, when they hide their command and control positions in houses, when they utilize universities to, to conduct uh, uh, um, communication activities, when they can use utilize areas, farm areas for staging grounds against our people, they become targets. So we are obviously operating, we only operate it within the world and the, uh, the uh, area of the laws of armed conflict, uh, always. And we do, as we always do, our utmost in order to remove the threat and limit the civilian, civilian casualty. But most important, and this is, this is our message, the people who are responsible for Gaza, for the people of Gaza are Hamas. The people of, of Gaza need to ask Hamas, why did they conduct this strategic attack against the people of southern Israel, butchering them in their houses, in their homes, in their in their bedrooms? And Colonel, to that point, there are also uh, Israeli Israeli citizens now being held in Gaza. There are Americans held hostage. I want your reaction to a woman that just joined us on the program, Sharon Lifshitz. Both of her parents, in their 80s, have been taken hostage, and this is her plea to IDF forces, listen. They need to confirm that they will protect these people, that they will not just go after and fight after and not protect. We are in Gaza now. My parents are in Gaza. My, my friends' children are in Gaza. This is a desperate moment. Do you have a response to her? She's pleading for in some way them and all of those held to be protected as the IDF responds to Hamas? Well, this is just heartbreaking. And, and you cannot, uh, as, as a human being, not identify with her and with her, with her grief or concerns. And we are doing our best in order to bring them home. And, uh, and I would say that it is Hamas that needs to listen very, very carefully, because if they want to come out in any way or form, of this conflict alive. They need to release those people immediately. They are responsible for their well-being, and we want them home. Um, you know, the, the images, the concerns, the families, the distress that we are hearing, it is, it is at the heart of this conflict with Hamas. They s- chose strategically, as a strategy, to cross over into communities, kill people, and abduct people. 1,200 people, killed, murdered, butchered, and and tens of others taken into Gaza for what reason? There is this terrorist organization is an abomination. They need to be removed from 
control. They cannot be permitted to, to have this leeway over anybody. And it's also from a normative perspective. We have to send a message together around the world that this is unacceptable. Colonel. Our force, military force, is determined to make sure that this can never happen to us again. And the crucial question that Tyrone and others are asking is, if it is not known where all these hostages are being held, how can their safety be ensured with these responding strikes? But final question on any route for escape for civilians. A really powerful interview our colleague Jake Tapper did yesterday with a Palestinian-American held who is in, who is stuck in Gaza. Her name is Hanin Okal. This is what she told Jake. Listen. Is there anywhere for you to go to escape uh to escape this barrage of no. missiles? No, we tried everywhere. They say, go to the shore, and then they bomb the shore next day. They say, go to the north, and then they bomb the north areas uh, next day. They, like everywhere, they're bombing everywhere. So no place is safe here in Gaza Strip. There have been major questions about Rafah and the crossing in the south into Egypt. Is there any place for Hanin and others in her position to escape at this point? They need to be very cautious. And I would, again, there's heartbreaking stories coming out from within the Gaza Strip. And when we look at it, we need to understand that Hamas has chosen this battleground. They have embedded themselves. You cannot expect Israel not to protect its civilians because Hamas is hiding behind theirs. You know, we need to, we need to take that into consideration. And as I said, our targets are Hamas, and they are jeopardizing the people of Gaza. I hope that she asked Hamas and, and I hope that your, 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 the reporter uh, also asked her, what does she expect from Hamas as the ruling government of Gaza? How do they protect? They cannot expect to attack Israel and Israel to sit on its hands. This is a situation which is unbearable. The ramifications of this strategic attack against Israel is a game changer. And we need to change the rules of this game. It cannot be perceived as a game where lives of Israelis are up are, are a free a free on sale product no we will not permit that we take the fight to hamas and hamas may, must pay dearly for this atrocity lieutenant colonel peter lerner of the idf i appreciate you joining us very much from tel aviv thank you thank you well we are learning more details about the scope of the brutality of hamas's attack on israel we're going to be live on the ground next The death toll in Israel continues to rise as more bodies are discovered from Saturday's attack. The horrifying details of the brutality now coming into sharp focus. And it's important to see these images to make sure we keep everything in perspective. We are learning more about the attacks on these four areas, Bay Area, Riem, Kfar Aza, and Stirot. We want to warn you that what we are about to show you is quite graphic. The assault on Beira started at the gate of the kibbutz. This video you're watching right now showing armed men removing bodies from an ambush car. More than 100 bodies were found, and other civilians were taken hostage after assailants went door to door trying to break into their homes. This attack happened around the same time that Hamas attacked the Nova Music Festival that was just outside Raim. Hundreds of Hamas gunmen broke through the border and shot and killed innocent people at point-blank range. Then they stole anything they could from the victims and their cars. Israeli officials found at least 260 people killed there. In the village of Kafar Aza, Hamas militants carried out a massacre. You'll remember that's where our Nick Robertson joined us yesterday morning 
with that live report. The IDF says that women, children, toddlers, the elderly were brutally butchered in an ISIS way of action. Houses are ransacked and set ablaze. Soldiers and rescue workers said possibly hundreds of people there were killed. Some estimates have the death toll in Kafaraza at more than 100. Absolute pure hell that broke loose and destroyed everything that we know. We're still processing it. It's going to be a while, very long. There's no going back from this. How can we go back to live in that beautiful place when we know what happened there? She is a survivor who witnessed all of that in the city of Stero, about a mile from the Gaza border. People were shot in their cars and on their feet just waiting at a bus stop. At least 20 civilians were killed, as well as about a dozen soldiers, firefighters and police officers. Well, joining us this morning, CNN Chief International Anchor Christian Amrampour. Christian. Thank you for being with us. And this is what we're hearing over and over. We heard it from Prime Minister Netanyahu, and we hear it repeatedly from the IDF. So many comparisons to ISIS in the way that these innocent civilians have been murdered. I mean, indeed, this is mass murder, isn't it? It's the massacres, it's beheadings, as we're told by the IDF. It's women, it's men, it's children. Not only have been killed in those dreadful images that you're showing are in the villages and kibbutzes, but also including those who've been taken into Gaza and are now (coughs) hostages, including old people uh, who, as you heard from Lieutenant Colonel Lerner, one woman taken across in a wheelchair across there. But here's, here's the thing. And here's the thing, what Hamas has done has completely blown for a moment the myth of Israel's military dominance and its intelligence dominance and its security dominance that everybody in the country and in the region has accepted as a truth over the last, you know, many, many decades, which is why you're hearing from all the Israeli spokespeople, from the ministers, from everybody, that what we have to do is now a game changer. This is a game changer. We have to change the rules of the game. You just heard Lieutenant Colonel Lerner say that. It's the message from every single Israeli official that this is the objective now, to re-establish conventional deterrence, because this is a complete and utter, you know, exposure of, for this instance, on Saturday, um, a massive failure, as we've been told by many of the Israeli officials as well, which they will look into later. But at the moment, they have to go in, they say, to re-establish deterrence. And to that end, we have heard the defense minister himself, Yoav Gallant, and I'll read it, say that they have taken all restraints off Israeli soldiers. So what does that mean? You are seeing what's happening in Gaza. You hear them say that they are abiding by the laws of war, that they're trying to protect civilians. They are correct that civilians are unfortunately embedded in the entire densely populated city of Gaza and in many, many other areas around the actual central city, Gaza City, in refugee camps, in in, in all sorts of places. We have been speaking to Gaza residents on our program who, you know, know precisely, you know, how different this is to any of the other encounters between Israel and uh, and Hamas. And they are clearly the civilians in a desperate situation. To, this, to the question of what would they say to Hamas for bringing this down on their heads, I tried to ask my, uh, my interlocutor, a, a, a doctor, and basically, you know, the line went dead. There's been a siege imposed by the Israeli um, defense minister, and 
Even President Biden, who stands full square with Israel, is trying to say to the Israeli prime minister that our democracies are only strong and we can only avenge our dead if we abide by the rules of war. We're in uncharted territory right now. Christiane, over the course of the last couple of days, your reporting and talking to former top Israeli officials, current as well, has been fascinating to get their take on things. You, you spoke, I believe, to former Israeli Prime Minister uh, Ehud Barak. What did he say? So Ehud Barak, first of all, has held just about every single political and military position and post in Israel's history. He is a fighter. He is a general. He was head of the, uh, the, the general staff. He was defense minister, foreign minister, prime minister. He's been in negotiations with the Palestinians. He literally knows every nook and cranny of the history of Israel. And he obviously, like many, are shocked and stunned at the complete failure of intelligence and military on that Saturday and knows that there will have to be a major uh, investigation like many uh, have told me, many current Israeli officials have told me, but that has to wait, he said, until, until Israel reimposes uh, and reestablishes its deterrence. He's very concerned about the moment of rage versus anger and the ability to actually prosecute a war uh, with a cool head. He's very worried as well, he says, about what he calls a current weak government in every aspect. Listen to what he said. The upper echelon of our command, the inner cabinet within the uh, government, it is now relatively weak. We have there the Minister of Defense, another minister who was uh, secretary, who was head of the Secret Service, and Netanyahu himself. That's a weak combination a weak team to lead uh, such a crisis. Some more serious people, more heavyweights, uh, should be brought into the cabinet in order to lead the crisis uh, calmly and with cool-headed. And I always uh, request in, in strategic issues, especially boiling blood is not a good uh, recipe for uh, uh, successful strategic uh, decisions. And of course, I asked him about the issue of the hostages, and we've all been hearing these dramatic and terrifying and heartbreaking stories from families, whether they're American or other nationalities and Israelis, who have lost their loved ones inside Gaza now. And they're very concerned about the effect of a war on the survivability of the, of the hostages. They're worried that videos will start being posted of the hostages begging for their lives. I asked Barack about that, and I said, why do you think Hamas did this at this point? He said one of the, one of the strategic aims of Hamas is to get, listen to this, 10,000 of their prisoners out of Israeli jails. So this is another of the massively complicating and, and, and human dramas and disasters that is, you know, affecting the, uh, the military, the politicians, and obviously the families, and obviously those who are held there themselves. That's really striking to hear from him because the, the question has been, you know, what will they want in exchange? Thousands and thousands of uh, their prisoners being held, it sounds like. Christian, thank you for that interview and the reporting, as always. Now watch this video. It was recorded by Guy Danon. He hides in a bus shortly after Hamas militants attacked the Nova Music Festival.
just imagine hiding, hiding like that during what we now know was a massacre of 260 people right near that site. Guy and his friends were celebrating his 27th birthday when this attack began. It forced them to run for their lives. And eventually they found a spot in the middle of nowhere lying inside those bushes that you see around them. And they stayed there for more than eight hours until they were rescued by a complete stranger. And Guy Danone joins us now. I am so thankful, everyone, is that you and your friends made it out alive. So many did not. When you were running, finally, you believed that you were being shot at. It was that close of a call for you. Uh, yes, Papi, yes. First of all, thank you for the kind words. And yes, it was truly terrifying. Uh, we didn't know like, if we were getting shot at or no, but at this moment, I saw two friends of ours that we were separated earlier. And the moment before that, we just thought that we are surrounded and the shots were so close. I really thought, that's it, we're going to, to die. And with the moment I saw them, it just gave me the strength. I signaled them, I told them, told them to come here and we ran together all the way to the area where the bushes were. And it was like, it seemed like an inaccessible area. So we just slid inside the thorn bushes and we hid there for eight hours, yeah. You know, we always say that when the worst of humanity is shown, we also see the best of humanity. And I think your story exemplifies that. A good Samaritan, a hero, saved your life, came to your rescue. His, his, his name is Oz and you didn't know him. What did he do? How did he save you? Yeah, exactly. So I didn't know him. And during the time we were hiding uh, in the bushes, I was only able to text uh, by SMS to my sister, which she had known uh, several people that connect, uh, connected me to him. He sent me a message and told me, where are you? I'm coming to get you. Don't you worry. You will be safe. And yeah, he's, he's just a, a hero. He, like, he, he risked his life. He's just a, a citizen. Mm -hmm. And I have so many, so many thanks to him. Like, I, I don't know, how could I even be thankful for that? And he saved not just, not just you guys, but many others? Yes, exactly. Like, he, I think he saved like tens of people only that, that day alone. And I know, I know that he kept going the day after and he won't stop until he, he knows that he, he has secured everyone that uh, has been in the area. He, he's just a remarkable man. You are joining us from Lod, Israel. But can I ask, I have to ask, you are sitting purposefully in front of an American flag. Can I ask why? No, it's just in my house, like <laughs> I have this uh, flag and I really love America. I've been in America a couple of times. And uh, yeah, I got family in America, in uh, New York, in uh, New Jersey. Wow. So uh, yeah. That, that's it. It was very clear from President Biden yesterday that America stands right alongside you in all of this. Guy, thank you very much. Thank you. Well, we're continuing to follow all of the developments out of Israel and Gaza. But here in the U.S., there is no sign from House Republicans that they can agree on a new House speaker. We're going to ask Republican Congressman Steve Womack about that and what's next. Coming up next. Stay with us. More CNN This Morning to come after the break.
It is a busy day on Capitol Hill. House Republicans are expected to vote for Kevin McCarthy's successor. House Majority Leader Steve Scalise and Judiciary Committee Chairman Jim Jordan are the conference's two candidates, at least known candidates, for speaker. But after a closed-door forum last night, lawmakers, well, they appear to be no closer to coalescing around one of them. I um, am, am not thrilled with, with either choice right now. I think, I think someone will come forward. I think someone else will come forward, and, and I don't know who that is, and, and I'm not backing anybody. In case you guys haven't noticed, we're a pretty divided conger conference right now, um, so I think this might take a little time to sort out and figure out a way through it. Several members of the Republican conference telling reporters that neither candidate is close to the 217 votes needed to win the gavel. Joining us now, Republican Congressman from Arkansas, Steve Womack, is on the Appropriations Committee. He is a supporter of Congressman Steve Scalise, the current majority leader for Speaker. Uh, Congressman Womack, I appreciate your time. Uh, to start with, I think, the fairly obvious question, do you believe you end this day with 217 Republicans in favor of a single candidate? No, I don't. Um, and there is good reason why. Of, of course, we've got to meet this morning in conference at 10 o'clock, and I think the first thing up will be the proposed rules change that instead of the person getting the majority of votes being our nominee to the floor of the House, that instead there will be an, an amended um, amendment to the rule that would require the candidate that will go forward from the conference to have the requisite number majority votes for the whole Congress. So that's 217. Right. And if that's the benchmark, then uh, it is unlikely that we will seat a speaker today or this week for that matter, because that is a high bar uh, and neither of the candidates that are currently in the mix have demonstrated the ability to command that type of number. And yet it seems like the support, the requisite amount of support is there to pursue that bar, to put that bar into place. And I guess the question becomes, what's the end game here? I don't know what the end game is. The, obviously, the end game is we need to elect a speaker. I personally do not support that rule, right. the, the rule change, uh, because I, I'm kind of a put up or shut up kind of guy. I believe that we need to go to the floor of the House and we need to have our names called and we need to disclose who we are for in public in front of everybody with complete transparency. Uh, to do this, uh, look, I support doing it by secret ballot in our conference so that we can get a majority of those votes and send that nominee forward. But, but at the end of the day, we're going to need to go to the floor and be able to disclose who we are for and why. You referred to the conference as a bit of a scattergram the other day, which was actually a very helpful visual for me. Uh, I think fairly accurate as well. You know, to your point, the, the value of going to the floor, even if you don't have 217, it kind of forces everybody out into the open, puts pressure on people to actually reach an outcome. Uh, to what you're saying here, I, I don't understand how this ends anytime soon if this rule is implemented and neither candidate is anywhere near 217 votes. Well, we're just going to be stuck in our conference meeting. And it will spare the American public the drama on TV, but the members of the House, uh, the GOP majority, are going to sit in conference round after round after round and forum after forum before we can coalesce around a candidate. I think we ought to do it the way we did it with Kevin McCarthy. We ought to have the conference vote. We ought to submit our nominee forward. Let that vote take place on the floor of the House. We know the Democrats are going to be nominating Hakeem Jeffries. I would like to see the Republicans 
decide at that moment to put their support for the nominee that we put forward. That's really the, the quickest way out of this, in my opinion. Uh, but if we uh, amend the rule and we have to require 217, I think we're going to be stuck in neutral for a while. Can I ask, how, how frustrated are you right now? You're an appropriator. You're a congressman who's are known as somebody who does the I, work. Uh, look, I, I have been frustrated since before we were seated as the new majority. But I knew going in that with a very thin four or five seat majority, we were going to struggle to get some of the most important work done. You know, we got through debt ceiling, we got through the speaker's vote, then the debt ceiling, and then we ran into a brick wall on appropriations. And as you said, I'm an appropriator. So funding the government is part of our fundamental duty, and we can't even do that. So, and now here we are at the 11th hour with a clock ticking on a CR that runs out in mid-November, and we can't even seat a speaker. Man, that says volumes. At first, it was somewhat comical. Now it's, uh, on, it's bordering on the, uh, on the absurd. So let's hope that we can put this behind us quickly and move on to the important business of our, of our country and our world. Speaking of the important business, my preferred route of questioning, which is on the policy side of things, the administration seems to be leaning towards trying to combine Ukraine funding and uh, emergency funding for Israel, given uh, its conflict do you think that has a pathway forward? Well, as, as you probably know, I, look, I support everything we can do for Israel, given the current circumstances, and we need to do it, we need to do it post-haste. Uh, and that begins with getting a speaker elected. Uh, but I'm also a big supporter of helping our friends in Ukraine defend themselves against uh, Vladimir Putin. So uh, I'm not going to sacrifice one for the other, uh, but... But they, they are both important matters, and we need to have a full-throated discussion about it in our conference. And I hope that they, don't get, that they don't get caught up in the drama that's going on in the House right now. Yeah, have to have a speaker to move those forward, a majority for both, no question about it. Uh, Congressman Steve Womack, understand the, the frustration. Appreciate your time this morning. Thank you. Glad to be with you. Thank you so much. And CNN This Morning continues right now. This is CNN Breaking News. Good morning, everyone. It is the top of the hour. We're glad you're joining us. It is 8 a.m. here in New York, 3 p.m. in Israel, where the war with Hamas is rapidly intensifying. We have team coverage on the ground. Our Aaron Burnett, Nick Robertson, both standing by. Airstrikes and artillery fire raining down on Gaza this morning as 300,000 Israeli troops with tanks, armored vehicles, and heavy artillery massed near the border. Hamas firing a barrage of rockets. This is video of people scrambling in the wreckage as sirens blared in the Israeli city of Ashkelon. Our own Aaron Burnett was right by the Gaza border as that barrage of rockets flew overhead. We're gonna, we're gonna be, I'm not gonna be on camera, okay? Come to us, you can come to us. Tell me when I go. Oh, oh my God, it's crazy. You can see some streaks in the sky. We have just seen the Iron Dome here, right about three miles from the Gaza border. Uh, a lot of it, there's one right over there coming in. You're gonna hear it right up there. Got it? See if we can watch that one. And you can see those Iron Dome interceptions right above us. 
This is video of the destruction in Gaza this morning. The government there warning that all electricity will completely stop and fuel will run out for hospital generators today. Right now, we don't know the fate of all the hostages who were kidnapped from Israel and taken to Gaza. President Biden has confirmed Americans are among the captives and at least 20 U.S. citizens are currently unaccounted for. The death toll in Israel from Hamas's surprise assault over the weekend continues to rise. At least 1,200 people are now confirmed dead as the scale and savagery of Hamas's massacre of civilians comes to light more and more each day. 14 Americans are confirmed dead, and the State Department tells us that number is expected to rise today. Let's begin with Aaron Burnett in Ashkelon. Aaron, what are you seeing right now? We've been following you throughout the morning. Uh, what are you seeing at the moment? All right, so Phil, um, we're actually moving here uh, to a stairwell just because we're hearing uh, again incoming. Uh, so uh, our security team is having us move here to the stairwell. Uh, so as you can see, we're just taking shelter here as the north side of a building uh, because obviously the rocket fire from Gaza is coming from the south. Uh, obviously, you saw what happened earlier when we were uh, where the Israeli military is massing very close to where we are now in Ashkelon. Uh, we understand from that earlier barrage, I remember when we were talking, uh, they said 60, uh, they said we were saying dozens and dozens of fires, uh, rockets were fired. We now know about 60 were fired and about six of them broke through the dome or were partially intercepted, only partially intercepted by the Israeli Iron Dome. So uh, there were um, remnants here in Ashkelon, in the actual city center where those rockets uh, were targeting. Uh, we understand about 12 people people uh, were injured, and uh, we're going to be heading over there in just a few moments. Uh, but we are here now in Ashkelon, uh, and as you, you could see, obviously, there's other, other people, people here. This is a city, a city of more than 100,000 people. Uh, the roads are very empty, but not completely empty, and there are cars still going by, even as we could hear uh, the thudding that, uh, that just caused our security to ask us to move here back into this, this stairwell, as I said, Phil and Poppy, on the northern side of this building in Ashkelon. Aaron, you were speaking with us last hour about the, the proximity and how it's so different covering this war than Ukraine, for example. And the fact that you could go from where you were right into Ashkelon in less than an hour just shows us exactly that, just how close everything is. I mean, Poppy, and, and just to emphasize that, from where we were, mm -hmm. which was uh, in, in the Ashkelon area, but really essentially in, in vast, open, uh, sort of hilly fields right. where the Israeli forces are massing right now near that border, uh, from there to where we are right now, five or six minute drive, maybe an eight minute drive, and, and, as, and as I said, on, on one side of the road, uh, you're within the line of where the actual sirens are going off. On the other side of the road, we found a grocery store. Mm -hmm. uh, we went inside. Store was not completely empty. I mean, there was actually someone with a full grocery cart. Uh, I would say it was quite empty. Uh, the shelves were full. Uh, but there's also this semblance of life continuing to go on as normal, which, of course, is how things are here when people are so used to uh, the general situation, although, of course, not the unprecedented specifics of the situation that we're in right now. Aaron, right now, <clears throat> we can't, you can't see it, but we're showing a split screen of extremely dense uh, and intense smoke rising in Gaza. I know you've seen fighters fly over the top of you throughout the course of the morning. You've heard about some of the strikes there. Uh, can you talk about just, and I think this gets to what Poppy's saying about the proximity. You could smell the smoke when the wind was shifting back and forth. Uh, what that means for, I think, the future of what is expected to be a very intense conflict. 
Um, yes, you can smell. And I should just say, I don't know if, if you could see there from Albert, the, the woman behind me, she, I don't think wants to be seen on camera, but, uh, Poppy, I had mentioned to you earlier, someone coming out and offering us food. She was yeah. coming down and offering us, uh, orange juice with, with, with cups. I don't, I don't know if you could see that, but, uh, that, that's what we've been experiencing here. But yes, you see the billowing smoke and it smells and has that horrible, thick smell, uh, which, you know, you're close enough to smell. And then when the wind shifts, you can absolutely uh, smell it there as well. And I know Nick Robertson is here also watching all of that, that we now know Nick was 60 rockets here over Ashkelon, where, where you and I are probably not far away from each other here in this uh, city. Yeah, um, we've spent most of our time uh, in Starot, which is very, very close to the uh, to, to Gaza. It's perhaps about two miles away, and and it gives you that slightly different perspective because what you're witnessing, what we're witnessing here in in Ashkelon, is that sort of little uptick, slight uptick as compared to a few days ago, when in people trying to go about their daily business, going shopping, a few more cars on the road. In Starot, it really is still. Uh, not entirely deserted, but really most uh, people have left. The stores are all closed. There's, there's no, nowhere to go to buy anything. And on the streets there, really serious and significant foot patrols of military uh, doing their patrols through the town there because there's still this concern about uh, Hamas infiltration, although there's nothing for sure, they're taking a lot of precautions. So what we're really, what we're witnessing close to Gaza is, is this continued heavy artillery barrages. This heavy artillery that was firing into Gaza last night, you could, we could see the flash from where we were. And about four seconds later, the boom was so loud, the doors and the windows of the building we were in were rattling. The, the roof was shaking. Then there'd be the airstrikes as well uh, on Gaza. But you, you really understand, as we've been traveling around this morning, coming from Starot to where, to where we are here in Ashkelon at the moment, just that increase in military presence. We've been talking about it the past few days, but the convoys get bigger. Not only do you see the convoys, but you're beginning to see the troops deployed on the ground with, with their backpacks. They're carrying stretchers. They're carrying radios. They're carrying bedrolls. These are soldiers who are not going back to a barracks anywhere tonight. They are out in the field. They're deployed. And close to the border with that fence uh, to Gaza last night, we could hear a lot of heavy uh, equipment on the move. It sounded like possibly tanks, heavy mechanical diggers, all the sorts of things we've seen in the past that have been brought in by the military in advance of an incursion. Although there is no order for an incursion, I think for all the troops that are arriving here, they know that that is such a real possibility. Uh, the, and, and, I, and I think, you know, it's giving a sense of security again to the population here that they're coming out. But, but the closer you get to Gaza, um, it's much more of a military zone, not a civilian zone. Yeah, I know, Nick. I mean, you know, watching some of those convoys go by and, uh, you know, one thing that really struck me is that the, uh, you'd have someone on the top uh, with the machine gun and fully ready to go. Um, you know, not, not sitting and waiting, fully ready to go. Um, one thing I know you also had a chance to experience, Nick, is, is sort of why we're here to begin with, right, is these, we're getting more and more understanding of the horrific atrocities that happened in people's homes when these militants went door to door uh, slaughtering people. And you were able to go to a kibbutz where that had happened. Can you tell us what you actually saw? 
Absolutely. And, and I'll tell you that about a conversation that I've just had, actually two conversations this morning. I've just been visiting a man who uh, escaped. I mean, he doesn't know how he was so lucky. But he had hidden out in one of the uh, rocket shelters, the hard shelters, the concrete shelters, when uh, Hamas was coming. He didn't know that they were coming. He hid there because of the rocket attack. This was Saturday morning. Um, and then he said all these other young people that were fleeing that music festival, they arrived in their cars and, and piled, into the, piled into this tiny, tiny space in the shelter. It's a tiny space. And he said there were about 20 people crammed in there. Hamas gunmen, he said, came up. He, the, the shooting, they could hear it getting louder and louder and louder. And then they stopped and they started shooting into this shelter. Uh, where he was, op opening fire on people that are just cowering there. Then after firing, they, they threw a grenade in. Um, he said it was just chaos, people screaming, people moaning, people in, people in agony. And then he, he said they threw another grenade in and he saw it and he, and he turned to the wall to try to protect himself. But he said, amazingly, it, it didn't go off and the shooting stopped. And then when he, he ventured out, he said he had to climb over people to get out. When he ventured out, uh, there were two policemen, two Israeli policemen outside with handguns. And he thinks that they had helped save him and a couple of others in the shelter um, because they, they drove the, 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 the Hamas fighters away. Uh, he's still coming to terms with, uh, with, with, with what happened, but of course he, he helped put uh, some of the survivors, some of the victims in his car and drove them, drove them out of the area, got them as close to the hospital uh, as possible. Mm. All right, Nick. Thank you very much. Nick, of course, also uh, here in Ashkelon, uh, right near the Gaza border. And Phil and Poppy, uh, I send it back to you, and we're going we're gonna to head over to um, try to show everyone a little bit more about the impact of what this happens, uh, what happens when one of these rockets actually strikes and breaks through uh, that dome. Back to you. We will certainly be checking in with you. You and your team uh, stay safe. Uh, please pass our appreciation on uh, to the woman who offered you orange juice. I think that's been happening to you repeatedly, and I think it shows yes. uh, humanity and mm -hmm. personal side of this as well. Mm -hmm. Aaron Burnett. Thank you so much. I want to get back now to CNN military analyst Colonel Cedric Layton. Uh, Colonel, Aaron's reporting that six rockets had broken through the Iron Dome. We talk about what an incredible system it is when it's in action, um, but it's not infallible. Uh, talk through that. So basically, Phil, what you see is every system is vulnerable, and I can't emphasize that enough. So when you see the Iron Dome in uh, full impact and full effect here, you're able to see it take out some of the incoming rockets. The problem that you have is they can handle about 80 rockets per battery. Uh, once you get beyond that, once the system is saturated, then you have a whole different si uh, situation here. And uh, so you can tell, you know, when the rocket strikes occur, when Hamas is doing conducting these rocket strikes, they can go all over Israel and do this. Most of the time, these rocket strikes are intercepted. However, every time that they saturate the system and the system isn't quite ready to take care of the trajectory as it comes in to assess where it's going or any other type of anomaly, then you get an impact and you get the kinds of things that you see uh, in Ashkelon and in uh, several other cities uh, right around here. And the reason for that is the system is really dependent on accurate radar pictures, uh, in some cases accurate intelligence, and the ability of the operators of the system to actually figure out 
what's going to happen with the incoming rockets. And that really becomes the key thing. Colonel Cedric Clayton, thank you for standing by through all this reporting this morning. We'll get back to you very soon. And just moments from now, Congress is set to receive a classified briefing on the state of the war. Democratic Congressman Dean Phillips will be briefed. He joins us live right ahead of that. So in this moment, we must be crystal clear. We stand with Israel. We stand with Israel. And we will make sure Israel has what it needs to take care of its citizens, defend itself, and respond to this attack. President Biden declaring the United States unequivocal support for Israel's war on Hamas and saying he intends to ask Congress to approve new funding for Israel. You are looking at live pictures right now. Look at those smoke plumes out of Gaza City. Airstrikes have been raining down on Gaza in retaliation for Hamas's siege. Moments ago, lawmakers uh, are set to receive a classified briefing within the hour. Joining us now, one of the representatives who will be at that briefing is Democratic Congressman Dean Phillips of Minnesota. He is on the Foreign Affairs Committee. He's also the ranking member, I should note, of the Middle East, North Africa, and Central Asia subcommittee. He traveled to Israel twice this year, most recently in August, and met with Prime Minister Netanyahu both times. Good morning, Congressman. Good morning, Poppy. Good to just, be with you. Just seeing those live images as we brought you in, you heard uh, the boom there. You heard the strikes as they are ongoing. You met with Netanyahu twice. Given your recent trips there, those critical meetings, what is your assessment of how you believe Israel will respond in the coming days? Well, sadly, Poppy, I think uh, it's clear. Uh, there will likely be a ground invasion of Gaza. It's the last thing that Israel wants to do. It's the last thing the world wants to see. Uh, but it is the responsibility of any democratically elected government to protect its people. Uh, the failures uh, of security and intelligence in the last week are graphic, mm -hmm. and Israel has a responsibility. I, I ask Americans to recognize. Imagine if we had missiles raining on us from Canada. Right. Uh, you imagine. Uh, imagine if our own babies had their heads decapitated. Any human being. Forget your race, religion, you know, your politics. Uh, this is horrifying. And more than a congressman, I'm a human being. And these images and the depravity of Hamas has got to be addressed. They've got to be neutralized. And then, and only then, can we really plant the seeds of peace, which is going to be our next prerogative. And that's why I've been traveling to the Middle East uh, to inspire that. Yeah. And look, you have said, to end this as quickly as we can pursue mm -hmm. peace. That is, that is your mission. The question remains how complicated it is when you have so many civilians stuck in Gaza and Americans held hostage and Israelis held hostage as well. We learned from Phil's interview with Matt Miller at the State Department that the U.S. is working actively with Israel, with Egypt, with our allies in the region to try to find safe passage. But as we understand it, the Rafah crossing into Egypt is not passable for them right now. I just want your reaction to this is one Palestinian American speaking to Jake Tapper just yesterday. Is there anywhere for you to go to escape uh, to escape this barrage of no. missiles? No, we tried everywhere. They say, go to the shore, and then they bomb the shore next day. They say, go to the north, and then they bomb the north areas uh, next day. They, like, everywhere. They're bombing everywhere. So no place is safe here in Gaza Strip. Do you believe it is crucial to find a way for people like her to exit before this well, ground invasion that you believe is coming? 
Well, Poppy, again, as a human being, absolutely. My heart is bleeding for Israeli parents who've lost their children uh, and for Palestinian parents uh, who are suffering and losing their own and their lives, of course. That's why I've traveled to Riyadh recently, to Jerusalem, to inspire what we hope and still expect will be peace between Saudi Arabia and Israel. We believe in that because we think that may be the beginning of the very peace that we've been seeking for a half century between Israel and Palestinians. But I want to remind people, you know, Hamas is sworn to Israel's destruction. Hamas is sworn to annihilate the Jewish people. Uh, until they change that disposition, there's going to be more death, there's going to be more destruction. And I ask, I plead, I invite Palestinians to recognize that principled leadership in this time has never been more important. And if and when they achieve that, there might be a chance because then the rest of the world can push both sides together and ensure that we never see the images that we've been seeing this week. It's going to be difficult, but we must redouble our efforts right now because the Iranians, their proxies, Hamas, Hezbollah, they did this to disrupt that peace process because it frightens them. And I want people to be well aware of what this is really about. There is some division within your party, within the Democratic Party, uh, within Democrats in, in the House, uh, including Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib, Cori Bush, and also Congresswoman Ilhan Omar of Minnesota, your districts neighbor one another. In fact, your website notes they are the only neighboring districts in America represented by members of Jewish and Muslim faiths. Here is part of what she wrote. I want your reaction to it, Congressman. Quote, instead of continuing unconditional weapons sales and military aid to Israel, I urge the United States at long last to use its diplomatic might to push for peace. What is your response to that in this moment? Well, look, I, I don't want to get into these um, complicated issues on, on television, but I will say that there is right and wrong, and it's black and white to me right now. Mm -hmm. we, we have to support Israel. I mean, anybody who has seen what Hamas has done, anybody who knows what their charter reads, uh, has to make a choice. Uh, I know reasonable people can disagree. I don't think that's a reasonable proposition. With mm -hmm. all that said, yes, we should all have empathy for human beings, period, Israelis and Palestinians. I do not know why two things cannot be true at once. Mm -hmm. I take exception to some of my colleagues' support of some of the protests that have had uh, swastikas presented and, and clear and sickening anti-Semitism. I just ask people to be objective and empathize with both people right now. Uh, but there is wrong and right as it exists at this very moment. Uh, and the United States will be on the side of right no matter what a handful of our colleagues think because the overwhelming majority of Democrats and Republicans mm -hmm. feel the same way. But let me remind you, Poppy, we can't do anything anything until we have a Speaker of the House. That's right. I also call on my GOP colleagues. My GOP colleagues are meeting momentarily after our classified briefing uh, to hopefully uh, choose their new leader who will become the Speaker of the House. Absent that, we cannot provide a dollar. We can't take care of Americans. We cannot take care of Ukraine. And we surely can't take care of Israelis in the way that we will need to if we want democracy to win yeah. at the end of the day. Look, for your chamber to be paralyzed at a moment like this uh, on the world it's stage awful. is just stunning. You know, It's embarrassing. You, Congressman, you've made a lot of headlines uh, within the Democratic Party for being very vocal about your support of President Biden for all he has done in his record, but not for him as the next nominee. You recently even stepped down from House leadership and said that it is clear that my convictions about 2024 are incongruent with the positions of my colleagues, and that was causing discomfort. I, I, many people have asked if you're going to run. I'm not going to ask that question because I think you've been pretty clear. What I am going to ask is if the events of the last week and war breaking out in Israel, fears of escalation, uh, fears of whether support for Ukraine will continue, the divide in the Republican Party, no speaker. Do you still take that position? Do you think it is 
something that makes America look more vulnerable to our enemies to have division on that front within the Democratic Party. Absolutely. In fact, I think as we look back on the recent days in Israel, uh, we will discover that internal divisions in Israel, for reasons we're all aware of, probably created the window of opportunity for Hamas to do what they did. I think the United States should be uh, well aware of the same potential and consequences right here. The world is watching. Our dysfunction uh, is dangerous. I do want to celebrate President Biden. I thought his speech yesterday was outstanding. I think the way he's handled this uh, is, is uh, equally outstanding. Uh, and I think we should be focusing first on, of course, the United States, our support for Ukraine, and our support for Israel right now. But yes, until we get our act together, it's going to be hard for us. And by the way, but, Russia, China, Iran, North Korea, they're aligned yeah. in wanting to see us fail. And I would ask that thoughtful Americans on both sides of the aisle right now stop the nonsense and come together because it is existential. And we have a choice to make for our children and our grandchildren. And those choices will be made over the coming days. And to be clear, your position, though, on President Biden 2024 remains the same. I think President Biden is an extraordinary man. I think he saved our country. I also speak for an overwhelming majority of Americans uh, whose uh, perspectives I think have been uh, well shared. Uh, it's in the polls, it's in the numbers, it's how we all feel. He's a remarkable man. But my perspective on 2024 is clear because I'm afraid we're gonna have a repeat of 2016, which this country can ill afford. That's my perspective. It's not about the president. Yeah. It's about the numbers and the realities. Congressman Dean Phillips, really appreciate having you on. I'm gonna let you go. I know you have that briefing and please come back as you learn more. Thank you, Poppy. Of course. We wanna get straight back to CNN military analyst, Colonel Cedric Layton. Colonel, we want you to watch something that was happening uh, just in the past couple of moments. We've seen and been seeing a lot of explosions in the water near Gaza. This right there is something that just happened moments ago. What are we looking at here? So, Phil, this is one of those times when you have to kind of uh, step back a bit and see what the possible goals are. And I think what's happening here, now that I've seen this video, is that notice this uh, break wall right here. Uh, this is an effort to basically keep all of these little boats inside. And remember that one of the attack mechanisms uh, that uh, the uh, Hamas was using against Israel was to use some boats that uh, came and, uh, on the, along the Israeli coastline. Uh, so with that said, I think what they're trying to do is they're trying to box these guys in. There is a fishing fleet there too, so it'll probably impact them as well. But the basic idea that uh, I think the Israelis have is they fear that they're going to be using small boats to go attack uh, vessels in the, the Mediterranean, potentially, or even the Israeli coast. There's also some smoke over here in this building. I suspect that might very well be a target related to Hamas. Uh, I'm not 100% sure about that, but that is certainly something that looks like a, a very clear precision strike right there. So this uh, is the kind of activity that uh, is part of an effort to interdict what the Israelis believe the Hamas forces are going to be planning next. Okay, thank you, Colonel Layton. We'll get back to you shortly. Well, Israeli leaders are sending a strong message to Hamas to release more than 100 hostages unharmed. We're going to speak to an Israeli special operations veteran about what can actually be done for their safe return. The full responsibility rests on the barbaric murderers of Hamas and Islamic Jihad. And therefore, as to the well-being of those abducted and kidnapped, well, it should be made clear, not a hair on their heads should be armed. They should be unconditionally released and returned home. 
president of Israel there. And these are live images out of the damage in Eshkelon, Israel. Our Aaron Burnett is standing by. She's with us next from there. All right, let's get straight back to our colleague Aaron Burnett. Aaron, you are live at the scene of more damage in Ashkelon, Israel. Um, yes, Poppy. And, you know, Phil, uh, uh, as we've gone through this morning earlier when we saw, um, you know, just the barrage of rocket strikes uh, above us uh, where the forces were massed, uh, Israeli forces along the Gaza border, uh, those those rockets obviously were all aimed here in, in greater Ashkelon, where we are right now. And you talk about the cadence, right, that you get the sirens and a few seconds later you hear the, the noises and you see the interceptions. Well, out of about 60 rockets, we understand uh, a few of them managed to either break through or only partially intercepted. So we're standing where one of this happens. So this is the outcome, right? When they do break through, uh, rocket comes into this apartment building, goes through. Uh, there's still a, a live fire going on here. When we came here, there were still emergency crews uh, for, for this apartment building where we are. And um, look, you see these things here. You see these things in, in, in Ukraine, but it does make you realize, right, that this is the precariousness of human life and this is the randomness of these rocket strikes. So this rocket comes through after what we were sawing, uh, saw, actually, we were talking to you guys, right, in that ditch. This happened. Um, and uh, we, we don't know if there were any injuries here. We do believe there were injuries here in Ashkelon, although we have not heard of any deaths. But uh, Albert's going to show us here what happens. This is what happens around. And it's all on the physics of where you are on a side of the building and the randomness of a rocket attack. This is just one car. All the cars around here have their windows completely blown out. A little minivan over there blown out. Um, cars here completely blown out. And that's that's really what we're seeing. Some of these people are going over to their cars right now. I can see over there also where they've had uh, severe damage. People just going about their lives who are still living here in this city, as, I, as I've been saying to you all, of just over 100,000 people, 130 or so thousand people here in Ashkelon, right near the Gaza border, under this sort of heavy and constant assault. We keep hearing the thuds every few moments. As you know, uh, about 10, 15 minutes ago when we were with you, right, we had to uh, seek refuge in that in that stairway, our security, uh, when we, we heard those booms. And this is what it's like. So from start to finish, when you hear that siren till you see what happens uh, at the other end, that's that's the arc. That's the arc of what happens here, Phil and Poppy. Aaron, when you talk to residents, when you talk to the people who, as you noted, just kind of end up having to go about their daily lives, do they have a sense of, of the severity of what may be coming uh, in the wake of what we saw this past weekend? They do. They have a resignation. They have a belief that, 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 that what it, there is no moral equivalency in terms of what happened to Israelis in the terror attack, what happened to Israeli uh, babies and children, that there's no moral equivalency between that and a likely invasion of Gaza, which, of course, would include civilian deaths. Israel's been clear about that. They know that. That is a reality. Uh, there is a resignation and an acceptance of that and uh, an expectation, a real heavy sense of weightiness, because, yes, people are here. People are living their lives, but it is not normal. The streets are deserted. Many of the stores, as Nick Robertson were saying, are closed. The ones that are open are not very full. Uh, it is a nation on the edge, on the verge, and a nation waiting. And as we saw just a couple kilometers from here, and Nick Robertson was showing you, uh, you have more than 300,000 Israeli forces massing along the Gaza border down here alone right now. 
nation at war. And Aaron, we're so grateful you're there on the ground uh, with that. Thank you. We'll get back to you very soon. Well, Israeli officials say up to 150 hostages have been taken, including Eviatar David. Eviatar's brother spoke to CNN's Abby Phillip last night. Two days ago, two officers came to our house and uh, confirmed what we already knew, that my brother is kidnapped and being kept in the Gaza Strip. That was Eviatar's brother, Eli. He gave us permission to air the video you are about to see of his brother being taken because he wants the world to know and see exactly what happened. Before we play it, a warning, it is very hard to watch. So this is video. Uh, that is propaganda video. It is released by Hamas. CNN has blurred the language on the screen and the faces of the other hostages. Lay says his brother was one of the many who attended that music festival and was brutally attacked there. He was tied up and put in the back of a truck, taken away. Lay told Abby that he has no choice but to hope that somehow the IDF will be able to rescue his brothers. We have to believe that the IDF is doing anything to secure our sisters and our brothers and bring them back. Joining us now is someone with extensive experience in counterterrorism efforts, Israeli Special Operations veteran Aaron Cohen. Aaron, thank you so much. How do you do it? If you're the IDF right now, how do you execute this mission and rescue them and lead this attack? Well, let me uh, let me start with this. Uh, uh, Israel is uh, is no uh, junior varsity when it comes to hostage rescue. Uh, we may not have invented it, but let me tell you something. We perfected it. Uh, I'm going to take you back to uh, June 3rd, 1976. The Israelis uh, uh, rescued uh, in Entebbe, Uganda, from the old terminal, 103 hostages being held by the Black September Terror Group. We did it again when we conducted the first ever what's called tubular or linear assault, which is a uh, uh, an entry on an aircraft, a 707 uh, in the 70s that had taken hostages uh, and landed in, uh, at Lot Airport in uh, Tel Aviv. Uh, Israel, uh, their counter-terror hostage rescue teams are some of the finest in the world. Let me break it down. You've got the General Staff Reconnaissance Unit, which is Bibi Netanyahu's old unit. That's the same unit that went to Entebbe, where his older brother was the only Israeli casualty, Yoni Netanyahu. He's a national treasure. Mm. And we've got the Yamam, which is the Yechida Meuchedet Mishtartit, or the Israel Police National Counter-Terror Unit, one of the top three in the world. How we get these hostages back is first and foremost in Intelligence. And right now, the General Staff Reconnaissance Unit and the Yamam of the Israeli National Police have assets on the ground that are and, uh, working in conjunction with our Mossad and Shin Bet intelligence agencies. Thousands of agents are listening to thousands of phone calls. The General Staff Reconnaissance Unit has assets on the ground right now, planting listening devices all over Israel. Now, we are, I'm not talking about an incursion here. Uh, we're preparing for that, and I'll come into that. But uh, to get these hostages, we need information. We need to know what buildings they're located in, and we need to know what rooms they're in so that we can begin to develop plans, or the Israelis can develop plans to make entry. However, I want to say this. The hostage rescue operations, and there have been several that have been conducted in the southern portion of Israel in the last few days, where over 20 hostages have been rescued. That is a good sign. However, the hostage rescue operations that are being planned right now in Gaza, it's a different animal, and I'll tell you why. 
Uh, that is unsterile territory. There are booby traps. There are uh, uh, Hamas terrorists in there waiting for uh, Israeli uh, uh, forces. And the problem is, is that when you talk about hostage rescue in a foreign territory, in enemy territory, it's not unlike a cold case with a murder. And what I mean by that is for every second you waste, the terrorists can be moved. They can be taken to other locations. The more time in between the actual assault or takedown uh, uh, and, and the intelligence that's being gathered creates a, a greater amount of distance because those terrorists can be moved around. And remember, guys, we're talking about 80, 90 year old women we're talking about babies. We're talking about teenagers. We're talking about the elderly. So it is very complicated. Israel's on the clock here and they have to move quickly. But I want to tell you this. Again, Israel invented the playbook and you're about to see Israel at its finest. So stand by. Aaron, uh, the Secretary of Defense, U.S. officials have been talking about what they have offered uh, in terms of resources and assets. The Secretary of Defense said that there's actually a cell on the ground uh, U.S. special operators uh, are available and are in the region itself. That's right. The U.S. and Israel in special operations uh, scenarios work very closely together, train, uh, know each other quite well. What's the relationship like in this specific case? Well, the relationship between the United States Special Operations Units, Delta Force, uh, DevGru, also known as SEAL Team 6, the unit that killed bin Laden, the unit that rescued Captain Phillips, uh, and the Israeli Special Operations Forces, our general staff unit, the Imam, uh, uh, they're thick as thieves. And, and they've, been, uh, they've been sharing intelligence. Look, we're essentially, we are America's forward operating base in the Middle East. We provide extension, uh, extensive amount of intelligence uh, back and forth between the agencies. From what I understand, and there are American assets right now uh, because there's a possibility that there are uh, U.S. hostages that are being held. Uh, I cannot confirm. I don't know, but it is a possibility. Those units trained extensively together. They did a lot of operations against ISIS in a very clandestine unit that was operating or has been operating for the last uh, eight years in Syria and other parts of the Middle East. Uh, these units train together. These units share information. Uh, they are constantly in contact. That includes uh, uh, German assets, the GSG-9, the British SAS. Uh, uh, they have a fantastic relationship. And right now they are talking, they are planning. And the U.S. Uh, uh, intelligence technical capabilities with that fleet that's been moved into the region has an incredible signal intelligence capability that is being shared with the Israelis right now to help zero in on those hostages. That's our first concern right now in this operation. We need to get those hostages. And if you ask me how it could be done, I believe that the smokescreen of the counteroffensive, which is being planned by the Givati Brigade in the south, the 300, the reservist that's been called up, uh, the Givati Brigade is Israel's equivalent to the Marines. I think there's going to be a smokescreen there and an opportunity to use the chaos of that incursion or counteroffensive to mount multiple hostage rescue takedowns. It's going to be dangerous. Uh, it's going to be high intensity. And like your reporter said, there's going to be a, a, a lot of bloodshed, unfortunately. But we, uh, we pay a heavy price to have an Israeli state. So, so this is what we do. We come together in these times and we're creative and we execute with audacity and poise and precision, and it's time for Israel to go to work, and that's what we're preparing for. Aaron Cohen, we really appreciate your expertise on this. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, guys. And here are some live pictures from Gaza City where airstrikes have been raining down all day. Back here in the United States, aid to Israel hanging in the balance as House Republicans try to agree 
on a new House speaker. Without one, they cannot act and Congress is paralyzed. Back in a moment. A live look at the Capitol this morning where the race for House speaker is continuing and it appears Republicans are not closer to finding a candidate who can get the requisite 218 votes needed to hold the gavel. Multiple Republicans tell CNN the conference is not close to finding a speaker. For more than two hours last night, the two contenders, Jim Jordan and Steve Scalise, made their pitches. Ousted Speaker Kevin McCarthy is urging supporters not to nominate him, but some of the conference believe he may get some votes anyway. But why this matters? Without a speaker, plans for critical additional aid to Israel, also funding for Ukraine, it's all held up. And by the way, there is a government shutdown potentially around the corner. Joining us now, CNN political commentator David Axelrod and Republican strategist Doug Hyde. Morning, Doug. Morning, Doug. You're the Republican. <laughs> you're the Republican you. strategist. <laughs> what the heck? At a yeah. moment like this, in all seriousness. Clean it up, man. Yeah. Well, I mean that—that's what the whole purpose is about. And I think you know you both spend a lot of time in the Capitol, and you know that when the Republican conference meets after 5 p.m., it's not good news. When they meet more than once in a week, it's not good news. And that's that's the very real situation of where we are now. And we've heard this talked a lot about as a family meeting. The reality is this is mom and dad having the fight in front of the kids, and the kids all have phones in their hands where they're telling people outside of the living room exactly what's happening in that fight. And those can be interesting and fun parlor games, but here's why it's not fun and interesting parlor. It may be interesting, but not fun parlor games. After that motion to vacate was gaveled, uh, we heard a member on the floor yell, what's the plan? And that's the reality of where Republicans are right now. There still is no plan. There's no end in sight. And, and it, this could continue not just through today, but, but for several days, if not into next week. And given everything that's going on in the world right now, Republicans should be able to show that they've got their act together and that the American government has its act together. David, if you're the administration, you've been in the White House uh, trying to plan for as the president made clear, they need emergency supplemental aid for Ukraine. They've already asked for some. They want a lot more. They need emergency supplemental funds for Israel. Yeah. How do you map out a legislative strategy when you have no idea who's going to be leading the House majority? Well, it's hard. And as Doug said, this underscores the seriousness of the situation. You know, we tend to cover these things like sports, uh, but there are real consequences to it here. The one thing I wonder about, and Doug knows this world far better than I, but uh, they're going to take a secret ballot vote uh, this morning. Secret ballots are uh, kind of interesting exercises. And I'm not sure anybody knows quite what. A lot of people haven't declared their intentions. Uh, I remember uh, uh, Morris Udall, who was a, a, a congressman in the 1970s, ran for a leadership post. He was from Arizona. And he thought he was going to win. And he lost when they took a secret ballot. And he came out and said, you know what the difference is between a caucus and a cactus? With a cactus, the pricks are on the outside. So uh, can you say that on morning TV? Oh, you just That's did. No, okay, okay, well, did. Okay, okay, we're good. But, uh, but uh, the point is, you never know what's going to happen inside those meetings. And if someone comes, if someone has, you know, a lead of some margin, I do think there has to be some recognition in that room that you look really, really bad drawing this thing out. You look incompetent uh, when the world is on fire. And so, uh, you know, we'll see if they can form consensus and maybe some people take a walk and, and uh, on the vote and, and lower the threshold. But, uh, man, if I were advising them, I'd say get, get to it, uh, guys and girls.
Doug? Yeah, I saw Steve Womack on earlier, and I think Phil yeah, said you know, he, he's interview. somebody who he's somebody who does the work, is what Phil said. And and part of the problem that Republicans have that we have in our politics more broadly is that we don't reward the people who do the work. We reward the people with attention and fundraising who wear the shirts. And that's what we saw last night when Nancy Mace walked in. And, and it's why Republicans have had this problem, why we've gotten to this point, And we don't know how long this, this process will last. And I, you know, I remember one of Phil's favorite people, Roddy Piper, used to say, when you think you know the answers, <laughs> I change the questions. That's going to happen for Republicans today and tomorrow and could extend well into next week. And there are very real implications for that. Remember when Jeff Flake left Congress, a Republican, and he said there is absolutely zero reward for working together. Yeah, zero. No, and I that was then. The, I, I, I think it's a fundamental problem in our politics and it sort of mirrors social media. The incentive structure is out of whack. And so anger, alienation, outrage, these things are rewarded. Cooperation, compromise, these things are disdained. And it's very, very bad for democracy. Yeah, what's necessary is continuation of the two favorite name drops, Mo Udall and Roddy Piper in the same exact sit down. Don't forget yes. the. You don't PRI. get that anywhere else. The, the, yeah, well, that's Mo Udall. But I didn't say that. <laughs> I didn't say that. Doug, we appreciate you guys. Thanks so much. Thank you. Israeli Prime Minister Netanyahu calling President Biden yesterday, thanking him for his support and telling him just how brutal Saturday's terrorist attack was. We were struck Saturday by an attack whose savagery I can say we have not seen since the Holocaust. And since we last spoke, the extent of this evil, it's only gotten worse. CNN's Wolf Blitzer joins us next to put what is going on in the Middle East into historical perspective. Stay with us. I heard during my childhood about the pogrom in Europe and, and the Holocaust, of course. All my family came from, from Europe and their survival, etc., etc. I never think that I will see in my eyes picture and, and, and things like this. It was a remarkable moment. It happened yesterday morning yeah. live on our show. There's a major general for the IDF telling CNN's Nick Robertson that despite the tragic history of violence against the Jewish people, He's still unable to comprehend the carnage he's witnessed this week. Just yesterday, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu used similar language in a phone call with President Biden. We were struck Saturday by an attack whose savagery I can say we have not seen since the Holocaust. We've never seen such savagery in the history of the state. And they're even worse than ISIS. We're starting to learn details as the death toll and the scope of the brutality are coming into focus. More than 1,200 are dead in Israel and at least 1,050 are dead in Gaza. Israeli officials say up to 150 people have been taken hostage by Hamas militants. And still, many remain unaccounted for, like Ori Arad, who has been missing ever since the attack on the Israeli music festival Saturday. CNN's Wolf Blitzer spoke to Ori's brothers they also compared Hamas's attack to Israel to the Holocaust. In an act of pure evil, I don't have any other word to describe it. They shoot him again in a scene that's taken from the Holocaust period or something like that. We don't have any official information about Ori. Is he alive? Is he injured? Is it in a hospital or still in the field? Uh, maybe he's dead. Maybe he's kidnapped. We don't know nothing. We are in complete darkness. Mm. 
To put this all into perspective, so happy to be joined by our friend and CNN anchor of the Situation Room, Wolf Blitzer. Wolf, thanks so much for getting up early to be with us because you're so, you've covered so many conflicts, particularly in the Middle East. And in the moments after this attack over the weekend, there were so many comparisons to the Yom Kippur War to 1973. But now we also see how different it is fighting a terrorist organization, not conventional warfare at all. Put this in perspective as we wait to see what Israel will do next. I think it's fair to say, Poppy, uh, that uh, all of the Israeli experts on this, and they've, and they've watched all of the wars uh, that Israel has been involved in since 1948 when Israel was established. Mm -hmm. uh, this is unprecedented what's going on right now. Uh, and it's, uh, it's a new battle that Israel is now facing uh, from these Hamas uh, terrorists who's crossed into Israel and went door to door in various uh, kibbutzim uh, and various locations, including that musical festival, and just deciding to go kill as many Israelis as they possibly could. And uh, it's been a shocking development indeed, especially for everyone in Israel. And I've been speaking with Israelis almost on a daily basis, getting their sense of what's going on. This is truly something that hasn't happened before. Israel's faced terrorism over the years, suicide bombers and things like that. They faced full-scale wars the 1967 Six-Day War, the 1973 Yom Kippur War. Uh, but those were with countries, Egypt, Jordan, right. Syria in those days. This is, a, this is a very different situation that has now developed. Wolf, to that point, you have not just friends, family, uh, but also longtime sources at very high levels inside Israel. At what point did they move from shocked to stealing themselves for what's to come? I think they're moving to that point right now. They, they, they are almost certainly going to move in, into Gaza and deal with Hamas as best as they can, knowing it's complicated, knowing it's very dangerous, and knowing that there's a huge civilian population there, uh, but, and, and also knowing now that there are a lot of hostages that Hamas took from Israel into Gaza. So it's very, very complicated. I'm sure their military planners, their intelligence planners are going through various scenarios, rehearsals, how to deal with this. But I suspect that's going to happen uh, in the coming days. Uh, and I've been convinced for days now, since Saturday morning, that this new war that has developed is only just beginning. And I, I still believe that. Well, if I want to show our viewers, this is you, uh, prior in some of these tunnels that Hamas dug. You have experience with the tactics that they have used to attack Israel before. Speak to us about that as we think about this conflict now and how far Hamas will go and what they will do next. This, this was a tunnel, and, and I was the first journalist allowed to go through this tunnel uh, several years ago when I went to cover an earlier uh, uh, war that was going on between Israel and Hamas uh, in Gaza. Uh, it was built by the, by the Hamas, uh, and it went right out of Gaza and up to a kibbutz uh, mm -hmm. along the border, and that they would go in, and, and their plan at that time, which was thwarted by the Israelis, was to use this tunnel, instead of going across a fence uh, from Gaza into Israel, to go through these tunnels that they were building, and they were pretty sophisticated tunnels indeed. Uh, and I walked through it from Gaza into Israel, and it, it was a really... Uh, powerful experience for me as a journalist. Yeah. Wolf, as the son of Holocaust survivors, uh, how, how is this, how are you reflecting on this moment? 
Well, it's extremely sad. A thousand Jews were killed in one day, uh, the first day that uh, this, this incursion by Hamas developed. A thousand Jews in one day, that's more than have, have occurred since the Holocaust. Mm-hmm. And I know it's affecting the American Jewish community very, very strongly. Jews not in the U.S., not only in the U.S., but around the world. And, and I couldn't help but notice uh, that President Biden, two days in a row, yesterday and the day before, he, he made a strong statement warning of threats to the American Jewish community as well. I'll read to you what he said yesterday, because it jumped out at me two days in a row. He said something along these lines. We are also taking steps at, at home in cities across the United States of America. Police departments have stepped up security around centers of Jewish life. The Department of Homeland Security and the Federal Bureau of Investigation are working closely with state and local law enforcement and Jewish community partners to identify and disrupt any domestic threat that could emerge in connection with these horrific attacks. Uh, And if you drive around, I'm sure here in Washington or suburban Maryland or Virginia or New York or Chicago or other cities, you drive around, you see a synagogue, you almost always nowadays see a a police car or two right outside. There's a lot of concern about the potential spillover from what's happening between Gaza uh, and Israel and what could happen here. So there's a lot of fear about that right now. Brings it home for so many. Wolf Litzer, thank you so much for being with us for this perspective. For your reporting, we will see you tonight on The Situation Room. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you back here tomorrow morning. CNN News Central continues our coverage. That is it for this episode of CNN This Morning. You can check out our lineup of podcasts and showcasts at cnn.com slash audio or in your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.